Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Lack, uh, here with a brief solo intro before we get into the main body of the episode. This was a huge episode, a really fun episode you're going to hear, but sadly some of it went missing in the edit. We had uh, kind of a weird technical error while I was editing the episode and putting it all together. I was exporting the episode out of the software we use called Audacity, and we had a massive like crash, and basically all of the master files got severely corrupted to the point where Audacity could not read them anymore, so we lost the master of the podcast. Luckily, what was being exported, I was able to retrieve what had, had been exported so far, and that was about the first three hours and ten minutes of today's episode, so that survives, luckily. You're going to hear all of that as it was was originally recorded. We talk about Pokemon. We talk about Jedi Fallen Order. We talk about a bunch of news from Xbox and movies, all sorts of things. We talk about a bunch of movie reviews. Where we started to lose stuff was near the end of the episode, we get into a segment where we were talking about Disney Plus, and then we talked about The Mandalorian, the Star Wars show, and the massive data loss happened right as we were about to talk about The Mandalorian. So what you're going to hear today is everything that survives um, up through that Disney Plus conversation. It's not the full Disney Plus conversation, but I thought there was some good back and forth, so I saved as much of it as I could. Um, the Mandalorian review could not be reconstructed. It was more or less completely lost. There was nothing we could do about that, but we will talk about The Mandalorian next week or in a coming episode, and there'll be more episodes out, so we'll get to talk about more of it, and it'll be fun. Um, we liked the show. Well, I, I say that a little bit later in the episode. I will let you know when we get to that point in the episode um, when things are transitioning because there's also an extra segment at the very end of this episode where I was able to salvage some material from a segment we recorded where we sort of played a fun, weird trivia game that I put together and I was able to reconstruct that so you'll still hear that at the end of the episode so really the only thing missing from the data loss is the Mandalorian review I know that sucks, but I have to tell you, you know, we had a four-hour recording session today and losing only about 25 minutes of it total um, when we could have lost the whole thing feels good. So uh, thank God we have as much of this episode as we do. But yeah, that's it for me for now. Um, here's the full episode as we originally recorded it. We really hope you enjoy. It's a fun one. And yeah, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. This week on the show, we are talking about everything. I've seen a bunch of movies, we've played a bunch of games, there's a new Pokemon game out, there's a new Star Wars game out, there's a new Star Wars show out, there's a new Disney streaming service out, there's a bunch of news, Xbox had an event, we learned some stuff about Anthem, Sonic the Hedgehog got a digital makeover. Sean, this is going to be a busy one. Yep, no, yeah, a lot of shit has happened, and we we missed last week, but honestly, I don't feel like that affected it almost nope. at all, because everything happened just in this week. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's a weird, usually what happens is, like, if we miss a week, we have two weeks of news piled up. This is how this podcast episode would have been, basically, no matter what. Yep, pretty much, pretty much. All right, uh, so, yes, let's dive in. Uh, Sean little bit of housekeeping and stuff. I just had one thing I wanted to mention, which is last week while we were on our little one-week break, I was bored, and I made a silly video for our YouTube channel. Mm. Mostly just because I was bored. But I got the Hitman 2 DLC, which I don't know if you've played yet. I haven't gotten around to it yet, just because I have not 
have time and I just want to wait till like winter break or something that I have some yeah. time to just luxuriate in Hitman. So I've just let a bunch of the new, both the new maps and just a bunch of like escalation stuff to pile up. So I have a good chunk of Hitman to get to at some point. Yeah, and I wanted to check out the new maps, and they had over the, I think, Halloween sale, they had the DLC pack, the, the expansion pass, for $12, which was kind of crazy because it's normally $40. Mm-hmm. So I saved a lot of money that way, bought it. I was playing around in the New York map, and I made a silly uh, YouTube video about it. Did you watch it, Sean? Um, I, I clicked through it. I didn't have time to watch the whole thing, but I because you sent oh, me the okay. link because I, I had not noticed that you'd made that video. So I, well, I sort of browsed through it. I think I got the gist of what the video is. Uh, the video is presented as a normal how-to walkthrough, but the joke, I'll just give it to you now. You can go watch it on our YouTube channel. The whole idea is I am bad at Hitman, and uh-huh. the first time I play a level, I basically just kind of wind up ignoring all the story stuff, and I just kind of like go for it on instinct, and I do very poorly. So what I did, Sean, is I basically took a first run-through of the New York level where I had no rhyme or reason to anything I was doing, took the raw footage, wrote a script to it as if this was a like step-by-step guide to my crazy method of it, like completely serious, and it is sort of a tongue-in-cheek just me going through that and i was kind of i didn't i i tried several different versions of it before i finally kind of finished it and put it out and i'm kind of happy with the final version it's extremely dumb but if people want to watch it and give me some feedback i don't know if i'll ever do anything like that again i was just bored one weekend and i thought it would be fun uh and i realized the ps4 lets you save footage very easily in some of their like they've updated the sharing stuff so much over the years now you can just like save an hour of footage if you want to so it's Mm -hmm. very easy to like grab footage off of there without a capture card or anything so yeah that was that's what i did because we didn't have a podcast last week well there you go we've got we've got some fresh new content on the on the youtube channel and you can watch that if you want to you know feel a few brain cells die there you go yes i did see you got a five-star rating at the end of the mission so i was pretty impressed Yes, I, I, I absolutely did. Uh, Sean, I want to hear what you've been up to in just a second. I'm going to try another crazy Mountain Dew flavor I found on the podcast. <laughs> Our new recurring segment. segment. Uh, this is Mountain Dew Merry Mashup. It's their Christmas flavor. It says oh cranberry pomegranate flavor with other natural flavors. Natural flavors in Mountain Dew, sure. Anyway, you tell us what you've been up to, and then I'll give us an update on what the fuck Mountain Dew Merry Mash is. Okay, well, while Jonathan is destroying his uh, taste buds, I'm just going to luxuriate in my having the Godzilla set. Um, Yes. The last time we podcasted was like a day or two before I got my Godzilla um, set in. Uh, it It is beautiful. It is perfect. Um, I've, I've not sort of fully dove into anything other than I watched Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla because I was like personally obligated to, now that I own a version of Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla that is more modern than a VHS, I sort of jumped the whole DVD spectrum and went straight to Blu-ray. Um, and it's the first time I'd ever seen that movie with the proper Japanese dialogue. Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla kicks ass. Jonathan, does Mountain Dew marry whatever the fuck? Does that kick ass like Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla? Are you asking me because I just made a weird face? Yes, you made an expression to the camera that indicated I should ask you. Um, I don't know. I'm going to have to take another... I can taste the cranberry. It's weird. It's very weird. Well, I'll get back to you on this. Keep keep going. Okay. I'm only taking one sip. 
Okay, so... I have Godzilla the Godzilla versus... set, too, I gotta say, though, and it is a wonderful... Well, yeah, we heard it on the podcast last time. It's very cool. Yes, yeah. So, Godzilla vs. Godzilla is great. Um, the transfers of the movies are fantastic. Um, they have... So, like, the main thing, honestly, like, I dug into was the last disc, because that's the disc that has all the bonus materials on it. Um, that's also where, if you want to watch the Japanese version of King Kong vs. Godzilla, that's where that version of the movie is, which is weird. It's probably some sort of weird rights thing with Universal. Who knows how the fuck all that shit works out. Um, but, like, I did sort of click through a little bit. I watched the octopus scene from King Kong vs. Godzilla because that scene's very good. And that's, like, a good transfer. It's it's not like they had to put a shitty version of the Japanese track on there. It is just as good-looking as the normal English-language version as well on the King Kong vs. Godzilla disc. So people concerned about that kind of stuff, um, it is as comprehensive a collection as, as you could, like, imagine basically being put together. Um, all the extra features are great. There's a fan-fucking-tastic um, interview with uh, Akira Ifukube, the composer for most of the classic Godzilla movies. Um, that's from some like Japanese interview show from the 90s that he is just in his fucking office just with like a million instruments behind him and he's smoking through the entire interview. It's like a 20-minute interview with lots of cuts. So that was probably like a two-hour conversation the dude was smoking cigarette the entire time. It's fucking the most, like, 1990s old Japanese dude fucking conversation. There's a whole aside where he spends about five minutes explaining the, like, mathematical equation of how you, of, like, different notes based on the length of strings being plucked as he's explaining how they made the Godzilla roar sound effect. And the best part is... The whole thing of him explaining that the mathematical formula was for, like, the way of plucking a string that is not the way of plucking a string they used to do the Godzilla roar. So it was entirely useless information for the topic. But it's just, you can tell this dude knows his shit so far inside and out. The way he's just, like, throwing out, like, this random math equation. It's like, oh, that's how that works. Anyways, that's not what we did. Um, So that interview is great. There's, um... Uh, an interview with Ishiro Honda, the original director of Godzilla and a bunch of the Showa era films that that's like an hour long interview um, that the person interviewing him is Yoshimitsu Banno, who is the guy who directed Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. So that's a cool, it's like a cool conversation and, and Honda kind of goes through his whole career and his history of filmmaking and being friends with Akira Kurosawa. He calls Akira Kurosawa Kurosawa-kun which is very adorable um, because that's not something you ever hear anyone say because he's this so tremendously respected director, but they were like roommates and shit. So Yoshiro Honda must be one of the like five people on earth who could do that. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like they were good friends because Ishiro Honda also like worked on Ron and Kagemusha and a lot of the later um, Kurosawa films after he kind of retired from directing his own movies. Um, so he kind of just goes through his whole career, his pre Godzilla movies, Godzilla stuff. Um, it's really great. Like, I got almost, like, weirdly emotional at times watching that interview. Just, like, the way that Honda sort of, like, sees the world and him talking about... Because he was also, you know, he was a soldier in World War II for a lot... Like, for, like, the whole war. Like, he, he like, saw some shit um, in the war. He was, obviously, he wasn't in Japan when the bomb dropped. But he came back home and went through Hiroshima after the bomb dropped. And that's part of what informed him creating Godzilla. Um, so, like, that whole interview is fantastic. If you have any interest in Godzilla or the history of that, that franchise, 
like that interview is an absolute must watch and then also i have to say all the um if you get the full collection all the little like essay bits written in there for each of the movies because they kind of do the same thing they did with zatoichi where each movie has a several paragraph long introduction those are really good um they give a lot i've read a couple of them they're really good yeah, they give a lot of good like historical context. I, you know, I don't agree with all the opinions on Godzilla movies expressed in those. Um, I think it doesn't give the credit to Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla that Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla is due. I noticed um, that you, when I was reading it through because it said it was like this was kind of a lesser one, and I'm like, oh, Sean's not gonna like that. It's worth shit. Like I, I rewatched <laughs> Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. That movie kicks so much fucking ass. There's maybe no better 30 seconds of movie ever made than when Mechagodzilla reveals its true nature in like the first third of that movie when he just explodes his Godzilla, fake Godzilla skin off and it's just the soundtrack of that movie is perfect, the just cheesy editing and everything, it's amazing, that movie is fantastic. But yeah, so, but you know, it's usually there aren't even really that many like, here's like a critical discussion of the, the like, values of this movie in terms of is it a good movie or bad movie it's more just like let me contextualize what this movie is um and for some of those that is really useful for when like here's when this director took over from honda here's like how the fuck all monsters attack got made which is the movie that's like two-thirds footage from other godzilla movies all that kind of stuff um most of it is stuff that i already knew but there is stuff in there that i had never heard or read about so it's it's pretty detailed um and good stuff so yeah if you are really into Godzilla or you want to be into Godzilla, this is like an absolute must own. Um, the art is just utterly gorgeous and fantastic throughout. So yeah, you've got, I've got a lot of Godzilla movies I can rewatch. Um, and I'm very, very happy. And the art is so good throughout that set. I just want to like highlight that. I love looking at all the big pictures and it's my favorite thing about the size of the set is that you get those really big reproductions of all the new artwork they've commissioned and it's great. Mm-hmm. I love whichever movie it is where Godzilla does his fun jump. The artwork of Godzilla doing his fun jump is fantastic. Yes, Invasion of the Astro Monster. That was a good yes. choice. Uh, you know what that movie is immediately upon like flipping. It's like, oh yes, that's the movie where that gift comes from. Yes, it's great. Uh, I have not watched the movies yet. Uh, I watched the original Godzilla again, actually, just because I'm like, well, if I want to move through this set chronologically, let's start with the one I know. And it's there's nothing new on that disc. That's the existing Criterion disc for Godzilla, because you can't really improve on it. Um, mm-hmm. But that's still, obviously, a great movie. It's your favorite movie ever. I see why. It's fantastic. And I want to watch more. I have been very, very busy with other things, and I have not had time to watch more Godzilla. But I'm sure we will get to it at some point. Yes, we, we must talk about Godzilla vs. Godzilla. You need to watch it. It's so good. I will tell you, Sean, here's a little fun fact. I am, at some point, probably in the next year, I'm going to be up in the queue to teach our film club class at UIowa, which is this one semester hour course where you just show a movie each week to undergrads, and they like they watch it, then we have like a half hour of discussion, and they get an easy credit hour, right? Mm-hmm. And you get to theme it on something, and my pitch I'm putting together is I want to do one themed around giant robots. This is how I will get to show Mobile Suit Gundam stuff, but that also means Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla goes right on that list. Yeah, you could do Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla and Godzilla vs. Megalon, because that has Jet Jaguar in it. I so, have that on know. there, too. I probably might might stick to one, but if I want to go further, there is Jet Jaguar. Um, 
Yes. You could so, maybe do assign that as like homework. If, if you want to go home and watch Godzilla vs. Mega, Godzilla vs. Megalon and then write an essay about how cool Jet Jaguar is and how ridiculous that fucking movie is, like give, give him some extra points. Yes. So I'm researching that and I'm excited to watch Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla at some point. One, because you've been hyping it for years. And two, it's, uh, I mean, I can teach it now if I want to. That really would not have been an option before other than like finding a VHS, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, very cool stuff. Yeah. Um, let's see. What else have I been up to? Uh... There's some other video game stuff that I, I think I'm not really going to get into today because there's just so much else going on. I've played about five hours of Luigi's Mansion 3. It's very solid, but it's it's kind of light and it didn't fully hold my interest. And then I I got to a boss that was such a horrible boss fight that I put the mm. game down. And I have not come back to it yet. Um, not just because I didn't like the boss fight. There are a lot of games out right now if you haven't noticed. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Too many games. Just too many games. And so Luigi's Mansion 3 is, is you know, I've got it. I might play more of it later. It's interesting. Um, Terry Bogard did come to Smash Brothers, the new Smash Brothers DLC character. And he's awesome. Terry Bogard is one of the coolest fighters in Smash now. He, I think, is more accessible than Ken or Ryu, the Street Fighter guys. I think you need to kind of understand Street Fighter mechanics a little more to play those guys. Um Terry feels better integrated into Smash, but he still has a ton of his classic moves from King of Fighters and stuff, and he's just really fun to mess around with. His stage is really damn cool. It's very different. It's like kind of a basic just like fighting arena, and you kill, you kill, you knock out your opponents by like kicking them into this like invisible wall, and if they're high enough, they just get sent out and KO'd. So it's a little different than other Smash Brothers stages. Mm -hmm. And most impressively... Most of the DLC characters come with, like, between 8 to 16 tracks of music, which is nice. Like, that's a good selection. Like, for Persona, you got, like, six Persona 5 songs and a couple from Persona 3 and 4, and that seemed very generous. Uh, generous. Terry comes with 80 tracks, Sean. They just put in, like, a shit ton of music from every Neo Geo game under the sun, and it's amazing. Like, there's stuff in there from games Terry has nothing to do with, like Metal Slug uh, and Samurai Showdown. And it's just like, if you want to play Smash now with some Neo Geo music or some SNK music, go for it. There's, like, a hundred tracks in the game now. I'm not exaggerating. It's crazy. Awesome. Yeah, I watched the um, the video that uh, Sakurai did, which it's I love... I love just, like, comparing that to the other ones, as like, especially the Banjo one, where, like, it seems like he was kind of into Banjo and Kazooie, and then you go to Terry and Fatal Fury and KOF stuff, and he's like, here, let me tell you, like, here's a whole paragraph of information about, like, Iori from, from King Fighters. It's not even the character, like, he's just in the background of the stage sometimes. It's yes. not even the TLC character. I swear he said more about, like, that dude than he said about fucking Kazooie from Banjo and Kazooie. It's great. Like, you can tell just how much Sakurai just loves um, KOF and Fatal Fury if you watch that video. It's, it's so fucking funny. It's great. It's great. Um, yeah, so before we move on to other stuff, Update on Mountain Dew, because I forgot to tell you, now that I've actually taken a couple sips of this monstrosity, Mm -hmm. Sean. Yeah. I like the flavor. It is cranberry pomegranate. does seem like a good way to describe it. It's a good flavor. It's got a weird, like, kick to it, though, that tastes like if you've ever had, like, sparkling cider or something. It's Mm kind of got, like, that going down the throat. So it's weird. It does not, like, go down like other Mountain Dews. And I have a sinking suspicion it is a vat of every other Mountain Dew flavor possibly thrown together. And then they added some cranberry to, like, cover it. 
because it's kind of weird, but I'm I'm okay with it. It tastes festive. Okay, it tastes festive. I mean, that's what they're going for. It is. It is. What other stuff do you have, Sean? Before we move on to other things, um, I oh, I finished up the Outer Worlds since the last time we talked. I like that game. Um, it's not like my opinions on it have not changed dramatically. Uh, I think it has some really fun character stuff, and I like all the companions. But I think the main story is pretty predictable, and kind of it is like the main story I found ultimately kind of disappointing, just in kind of how unambitious it is, and especially it feels like a story that would have been written in like 2011, 2012, when most of like the game's mechanics kind of are pulled from, um, and it, it doesn't feel particularly well calibrated for i think the brand of sort of anti-capitalist narrative you're looking for in 2019 like that the standards on that have changed a lot in the past 10 years or so um so they have like a very kind of lukewarm vaguely centrist uh kind of thing to say about their like weird hyper-capitalist health future um it's it's I think the game is ultimately like not actually that interested into diving into the dynamics of the setting. It more just uses this like ridiculous um, version of capitalism and people like working for the company and all this shit that that they do more as the kind of like a fun goof that gives a little extra flavor to the world, but it's not something that like they really dive into um, in terms of like ideology or philosophy or even like theming really is not it's not much there um, it kind of feels like you could transplant a lot of the game setting into a different setting and the core story would not really change all that much and that feels like a big missed opportunity um, so like and that kind of keeps the game in this like it's pretty good level but you can at points see how if they took a sharper left turn if they're more ambitious or more confident in something that the game could have been like really great in terms of its storytelling and it's more just like yeah this is fine um it's it's like an enjoyable story it's got some really fun characters i really like parvati um who's one of your companion characters she's great like everyone if you've heard anything about the game you've probably heard about her because she's fantastic um, and then there's another campaign character named Ellie that I like a lot, that they do a lot of cool things with her once you kind of get into her backstory in the latter third of the game. Um, but yeah, like Outer Worlds, I think it's like, if you if you enjoy those kinds of games, pick it up, play it, like it's totally fun. Maybe wait for it to be on sale um, would be my recommendation. It's probably going to be like a number 10 slot in like game of the year. Like it's it's good, not ambitious, wish it was better. But I, I enjoyed my time with it. Interesting. Yeah, I am probably not going to play that game. Doesn't really sound like my kind of thing. But I'm glad yeah. you did. I'm glad we got to hear about it here. Yes. All right. Yeah. So let's quickly roadmap the rest of the episode for people, Sean. Next, we're going to talk about I have seen a bunch of movies and I'm going to review them as quickly as possible. Then okay. we've got a bunch of news to talk about. We've got movie and gaming news. And we're going to then talk about video games, Pokemon Sword and Shield, and Jedi Fallen Order. That's coming up. And finally, we will be doing... Uh, a game, uh, we'll be talking about Disney Plus uh, and about The Mandalorian and we will finish the podcast with a little uh, game that you and I are going to play about trivia, about streaming services. Just wanted to make sure people know where we're going because this isn't a long outline and I also, for my own edification, wanted to make sure I know where we're going. Yes. Alright. All right. So, should I talk about some movies? Yes. What movies have you been watching, Jonathan? Sean, this is the craziest November for movies in... I, I honestly don't know how long. It's been like just a dearth 
uh, not dearth. It's it's just a, a a huge amount of great sort of art house stuff coming to indie theaters, and then I think Hollywood has been putting out a lot of interesting stuff that I haven't even caught up with everything I want to see. Uh, and there's more coming out because we've got Thanksgiving week coming up. Ryan Johnson's new movie is coming out, and that looks great. There's a bunch of other good stuff. So I've been kind of blown away, and I have been seeing a lot of movies. So I thought I would. This is not even everything I have seen in the last two weeks, Sean. But I will review four that I thought were really good. Uh, the first of which is Taika Waititi's new movie, Jojo Rabbit. We like Taika Waititi here. Uh, Jojo Rabbit, certainly one of the more hyped movies of the year. This is the Holocaust-era satire about a little German boy named Jojo who has kind of been inundated with Nazi propaganda. And he has an imaginary best friend who is Adolf Hitler, but Adolf Hitler played by Taika Waititi um, in a very funny performance. And uh, over the course of the movie, uh, he finds out his mother is hiding a little Jewish girl in the attic to protect her. And so Jojo kind of has to confront his prejudices. Um, Have you seen this movie, Sean? I'm just curious. No, no, I I haven't seen any of the movies you're going to talk about. Okay, yeah. Jojo Rabbit is very, it's my least favorite of these four I'm going to talk about. But I did like it. I think it's very interesting. It's a movie I feel like I need to see again because... I think whatever you're expecting going in, this movie isn't quite it. It is a satire. I don't find it particularly funny. And I don't know if that's a problem or not. Because it's tone... It's less about like making jokes like a Mel Brooks movie or something. Than it is, I think, trying to show what, it's, show what it would be like and is like to live in a culture inundated with hate and propaganda like this through the eyes of a child. And through the eyes of a child makes it sort of more whimsical. But Taika Waititi knows what he's doing here. When the movie gets dark, it gets properly dark. Like it does take the turn you would expect it to take. And it's very good. It's, it's sweet. I think it's very thoughtful. I think it's, it's specific questions it's interested in about how propaganda works on a child and sort of the process of deprogramming from that and the kind of wrenching aspect of that is really interesting. It's something I can't quite say I've seen before in something like this. Um, It's very well made and well acted. Scarlett Johansson plays his mother and I think it's one of the best performances she's ever given and really, really makes me wish Scarlett Johansson would shut up in interviews. (laughs) Uh Yeah. Uh, I just shouldn't say shut up, but just like... She's such a great actress, and then she'll talk about how, you know, it's bad that she doesn't get to play trans people or Asian people, and that Woody Allen was framed, and I'm like, please, please, you're so talented, just let us live in this bubble where we don't have to think about you defending Woody Allen, Scarlett, Um, because you're really good in this movie. Uh, Justin Hammer, what's his name, Uh, from Iron Man Uh 2. Sam Rockwell? Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell is probably deeply offended that I went to Justin Hammer and not any of his yeah. other great performances. I was so taken aback by you trying to refer to Sam Rockwell as Justin Hammer that I really wasn't sure what you're talking about for a second. Like, Sam what? Rockwell's in the movie. He's great. Lots of great actors. I think that the two kids at the center of the movie are phenomenal. Taika Waititi has proven he's, I think, a really great director of children, which is a significant and difficult skill. So Jojo Rabbit, I recommend. Um, this next movie, though, was the one that surprised me most, and that is Dr. Sleep, which is the sequel, sort of, to The Shining. And it's a really interesting movie, because, just as a bit of background, so The Shining, the 1980 movie by Stanley Kubrick, has, I think, kind of in popular culture overshadowed the book it's based on, but it's based, obviously, on a also very popular Stephen King book, and then Stephen, but Stephen King never liked the Stanley Kubrick movie. The Stanley Kubrick movie is 
not so much an adaptation of The Shining than it is kind of a like reaction to it and like it goes in very very different directions it has a completely different ending all this stuff um years later I think it came out earlier this decade in like 2012 Stephen King wrote a sequel called Dr. Sleep and the sequel the, the book is about an adult Danny Torrance the kid from the first movie sort of moving through life and living with his powers and dealing with some of the same issues of alcoholism his father went through and then uh, they made this movie. And so the movie is kind of adapting three or four different things. Because it is a sequel to the Stanley Kubrick movie. But it is also an adaptation of the Stephen King book. Which is a sequel to a continuity that is completely different than the Stanley Kubrick movie. Mm-hmm. And it also adapts pieces of the Stephen King book The Shining that are not in the Stanley Kubrick movie The Shining. So like I said, it's adapting a lot of different things. But ultimately, it is its own movie. Uh, the director and writer is a guy named Mike Flanagan, who's done a lot of horror stuff recently. He made a really acclaimed Stephen King adaptation for Netflix that I have not seen but I want to called Gerald's Game. Um, and so he's been kind of an up-and-coming director of this kind of thing. And I think he's got a really compelling vision for this movie. It is, I think, top to bottom, start to finish, one of the best Hollywood studio movies I've seen in years. Um It is, I think, the best of the mini 80s sequels we've had in recent years, like Blade Runner 2049, Star Wars, Ghostbusters, Terminator, like what what have you. These run the gamut from crap to great. Um, I would say Blade Runner 2049 probably being the best of these up till now. I think Doctor Sleep is even better than that. I think it's really, really thoughtful in how it approaches the original material. The final act of the movie takes place at the Overlook Hotel and kind of rebuilds Kubrick's sets. And I think that is a deeply fascinating and thoughtful sort of examination of pop culture memory as this sort of space of trauma and sort of a scarred psyche, and it does that really beautifully. But up to that point, it's often really its own movie, and I think it is at the end as well, but it's a really interesting story. Uh, Ewan McGregor plays an adult Danny Torrance who is an alcoholic to kind of suppress his shining powers. Um, He winds up in this small town on the East Coast, as you do in a Stephen King story, Um, and he joins Alcoholics Anonymous, and he sort of makes this small group of friends, and he starts working in a hospice where he helps um, old dying patients sort of transition to the afterlife with his shining powers. He kind of helps calm their mind, and that's how he gets the nickname Dr. Sleep. Um, Meanwhile, there is this group of sort of immortal energy vampires, is the only way I can describe them, who are going around finding children with shining powers and basically feeding on their energy to give them eternal youth. And the head of that group is played by uh, Rebecca Ferguson, the great actress from the recent Mission Impossible movies. She's Mm -hmm. in Mission Impossible 5 and 6. And she is... So fucking good in this movie, Sean. I made the comparison online uh, on Twitter to Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight, and I think it's like that good of a like. This is an just an electric villain performance to be watching on screen. It's amazing, um, and yeah. And then there is this little girl who is targeted by this group, and she is like very powerful with her shining powers and contacts Danny, and Danny decides to. Uh, help her out and and that's kind of where the plot of the movie goes but it is just so well made minute to minute it is so phenomenally acted i think it has a really interesting somewhat kubrickian but also its own thing sort of view of horror like i don't find this as scary as the shining but i find it more unsettling than a lot of other horror movies because it is it is like kubrick in that it's not jump scares it's not gore there's a little bit of gore here and there because this story is just more violent than the shining um 
but it is really doing its own thing. I, I was blown away by this movie start to finish, and I think it's... I'm really sad it has completely bombed at the box office. No one has seen this movie. I haven't met anyone who's seen this movie, <laughs> but it is so good, and I'm recommending it to everybody, and I would recommend you go see it in a theater. It's it's a tremendous movie, um, and I'm I'm so impressed that they pulled this off uh, because a sequel to The Shining is on paper a bad idea. This movie is great. And I also think it is one of, if not the best Stephen King adaptations post The Shining because I think it's one of the only Stephen King adaptations to A, fully embrace the just batshit weirdness of Stephen King at his weirdest because they fully commit to the energy vampire thing and it's like, all I will say is if Mike Flanagan had directed It, we would have gotten Maturin the, the god turtle that we did not get in the It movies, but is there in the book. They did not do Maturin the turtle. That made me sad. Uh, I think Mike Flanagan would have done it because Doctor Sleep is properly fucking weird. Um, and also I think the way he tackles the very Stephen King-esque themes of alcoholism, of like generational abuse and neglect and all these things like i think it's done much much better than in other modern stephen king adaptations i've seen um and i'm just i'm blown away by it it's a great movie and people should see it cool yeah like it's interesting because i feel like ever since they announced this movie myself and i imagine a lot of people just kind of wrote it off immediately of like there's absolutely no way this is going to be good this sounds like a terrible idea um and so i like it was just was never really on my radar until it came out and people started giving it good reviews because it's not you're not like the only person who likes this movie most people really really like it um i'm probably i'm not going to go out of my way to go to the theater to see it but i'll try to check it out at some point because it sounds really good and i love the original steven or the original kubrick shining i'm not a big fan of the book i'm not a big fan of stephen king's writing in general um but i have been fond of various adaptations so yeah I'm, I'm curious to see it at some point yeah I, you know to me like I'm not a huge King fan either but I think Stephen King obviously is a talented storyteller with a lot of really compelling ideas and I think that's why he's been such a rich vein of adaptation is sometimes you get a good enough filmmaker to kind of grab onto some of those ideas and pull something out of them mm-hmm. not just translate them to the screen you get something great. Like, Mike Flanagan is playing with King. He's deepening King in a way similar to what Kubrick was doing, which is this is not just a straight adaptation. It's a response. And I think that's really compelling. So, it's great. Uh, The other day, I went to see Ford v. Ferrari, which I've been very excited for because I am a basic American male, and I like fast cars and sticking it to Europeans. So... Had to go see Ford v. Ferrari. This is the new movie by James Mangold, who made Logan, The Wolverine, uh, 310 to Yuma, Walk the Line. Very, very solid director. This is definitely one of his best movies. Um, It's the true story of in the 60s when the Ford Motor Company was kind of on hard times and decided to kind of boost their image. They wanted to win the 24 Hours of Le Mans, the most prestigious uh, race in the world at the time. And they hired um, this guy named Carroll Shelby, played in the movie by Matt Damon, um, and this racer named Ken Miles, played by Christian Bale, to kind of engineer the car and race in Le Mans to win. Um, And it is... Like, if that description sounds like, ooh, I would like to see that movie, this is the movie you think it is. It's very, very good. It's an extremely solid version of what it is. This is um, the kind of movie where I would recommend, like, watch the trailer, and if those two minutes of footage get you, like, jazz, like, that looks good, 
100% you will love this movie. There's like no hint of false marketing to that. Um, it is a really, really good, well-characterized, well-acted, well-created, um, you know, true sports story. And I think it's very smart. Um, it's it's really well acted. Like I said, Matt Damon is great doing kind of a southern good old boy thing, which I have not really seen Matt Damon do before. But the most fun is Christian Bale, who Christian Bale is one of the best actors alive. But I am hard pressed to say if I've ever seen Christian Bale have fun in a movie. Do you know what I mean, Sean? Mm-hmm. Like Christian Bale yeah. tends to play pretty miserable characters <laughs> and seems to make himself pretty miserable in playing them. Uh, Ford v Ferrari might be the first movie I've seen Where I would say Christian Bale is just having fun In part because Ken Miles was British So he gets to be British And Ken Miles was also sort of like country British And so he is like putting on a big silly accent And just being flamboyantly British Like I don't know if he ever says the words tickety-boo But it sounds like the kind of character Who would go around saying tickety-boo And it's Mm -hmm. fantastic I want a Chitty Chitty Bang Bang remake With Christian Bale as the inventor That would be hilarious Um it's very good. the The race scenes are tremendously well done, and like the just it's a very it's a very procedural movie. Like if you want to see like how do they build the car, how do they test the car, what is it like to be a race car driver in these like really intense scenarios where you're doing like twenty four hours of racing, all of that, you will be very pleased by all of this. I think it takes uh, it it very gracefully takes a darker turn in the last act that is very well done. Um, and I think it, you know, it, this is the kind of story that could very easily become a raw, raw American enterprise story, like yay Ford American manufacturing. That's not what the movie is. The movie is very much, I think, about individual and interpersonal exceptionalism, and it is very mistrusting of giant corporations and ultimately has a pretty negative view of Ford in a lot of ways. And so I think it's calibrated in such a way where the story is properly like interesting and inspiring without becoming like jingoistic or pro corporation which i could see this story becoming very quickly so i really like this movie again this is one of the many movies playing at thanksgiving that like take your family i can't imagine anyone not liking this movie i have to say jonathan i had never heard about this movie since than you tweeting about it um when you saw it i have still not seen anyone talk about this movie I no, I had no idea really? this movie existed. I didn't know that it was James Mangold, who I like lots of his movies. Um, yeah, I don't know if, if it was just me or this movie got like no marketing. I have no, seen got... nothing from this movie. <laughs> I saw the trailer for this movie with like every movie I've seen for six months. I'm amazed you haven't seen the marketing. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't gone to a movie for six. I haven't gone okay. to a movie since I started teaching, at the very least. Yeah, um, it it opened number one at the box office this weekend. It did thirty one million. It's I think the biggest Fox performer since the Weird. the merger. Yeah, so, I just have not heard anything about it at all. It's well, just like completely, I just completely missed that this movie got like greenlit, that it got made, that it got marketed, and that it got put out. All of those facts did not enter my life. Well, Sean, I know you and your dad like to go see movies together sometimes. This is like the ultimate dad movie. It's the Mm -hmm. movie for the dad in our lives and the dad inside of us, even if we're not a literal dad yet. That is the kind of movie this is. It's the kind of movie that if you saw it on like TNT or HBO halfway through, you would sit and watch the whole thing. And I know that's an outdated reference because no one watches movies like that anymore. But if you are old enough to know what I'm talking about, you know what kind of movie this is. Yeah, okay. I get it. Yeah, you get it. All right. Uh, Finally, Sean... Holy fucking goddamn shit, I got to see the new Bong Joon-ho movie, Parasite. Bong Joon-ho is the director of The Host, 
Memories of Murder, Snowpiercer. He's about as good as a director as it gets. His movie Parasite won the Palme d'Or at Cannes this year. Came out in South Korea in May and is finally now out in the United States. It finally came to Iowa City this week. I went to see it yesterday. And Sean, I don't know the last time I was this viscerally blown away by a movie, like chemically buzzed walking out of the theater. It might be Mad Max Fury Road. Would be like the last one I would like make that direct comparison to. Parasite is in fucking sane. And that might be all I say about it. Because the best way to see Parasite is knowing absolutely nothing about Parasite. All I had seen was the poster. That was it. I knew nothing about this movie. I knew nothing about the story. And it is one hell of a yarn that starts small and goes some places. And... I am feverishly working on my best movies of the decade list, which we will be recording soon, and you'll be hearing in a month or two. And I have to say, Sean, fuck you, Bong Joon-ho. I had my list figured out, and then you put out Parasite a week before we're locking this shit down, and I might have to rethink it. Parasite is that good. It is a masterpiece. Please go see this movie if you live near anywhere where they are showing Parasite. Just, just If you have ever trusted me on anything, go see this movie and don't look anything up. It is that good. I definitely am going to go see it. I mean, I don't know if I will be able to see it when it's playing because it's, you know, it's not an easy movie to just go down to the movie theater right next to you and yes. go watch it kind of thing. Um, I'm going to watch it at some point. I have managed to avoid knowing almost anything about it other than who directed it and what it... T- I don't even think I've seen the poster. I, th- I think I'm, I'm less spoiled than you are. So I think we should leave it at that for this because I don't want to know anything about it until I see it. One other thing I'll say, just this won't be a spoiler or anything. Um, This is also the kind of movie that I would recommend to anyone. It doesn't matter how adventurous you are. I recommended this to my parents after seeing it. And there are very few movies I honestly like go out of my way to recommend to like my mom, especially if it's in a foreign language because they don't like reading subtitles that much. I think anyone would enjoy Parasite. It is very tough for me to imagine the kind of person who would not get something out of this movie. So go see it. And that's all we'll say. Sean, you want to do some news? Yeah, what's going on in the news, Jonathan? Deep breath. A couple of just fun announcements of upcoming events that are very much within our nerdy wheelhouse, Sean. And I just wanted to tell people in case they missed it, because I almost missed both of these. First up is that for Mobile Suit Gundam's ongoing 40th anniversary celebration, they are putting Char's Counterattack, the first Gundam movie, back in theaters. Well, it's never been in theaters in America. In theaters in America on, oh boy, I didn't put the date on here, but it's early December. I think it's yeah. December 4th. I have it on my calendar. Let me look it up here. Um, I want to say sec. it's 14th. I think it's earlier than that. It's, no, um, yeah, it's 12th? It's the 5th. It's the 5th. It's, oh, it's 5th, yes. Yeah. I knew it was a Thursday. Yes, it's a Thursday. It's mo- It's yeah. It's Thursday the fifth at seven p.m. nationwide. It's through Fathom Events, so it'll be in like a, a major theater near you, pretty much wherever mm-hmm. you live. Um, and it apparently will be subtitled, so it will be the original Japanese version. They're saying it'll have an interview with Yoshiyuki Tomino, but most importantly, you will get to see Shara's Counterattack on a big screen, which Sean we wished for like two months ago on the podcast. Now we get our wish. Yeah, I ordered my tickets like a month ago. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I was well aware of this. My Gundam feelers triggered a while nice. ago. Was yeah. Like, I, I pulled it. I was like, okay, yep. I mean, Thursday night is a fucking bummer. Like, God damn it. Why couldn't it be a Friday night or a weekend? Um, but, you know, whatever. If I have to be exhausted going into class on Friday because I went to see Char's Counterattack, that is a price I'm willing to pay. 
Absolutely. So we have a weekly Suit Gundam episode about Char's counterattack that you will be able to listen to after you see the movie. Um, and I'm very excited to go see it, and I'm sure we'll talk about it here. But that is very cool that Gundam... I, like, I love that they picked that movie. I love that they're doing it. It's very cool. Yes. Also, Yoshiki Tomino was um, at the New York Anime Convention. I don't remember what the con is called. Some sort of anime convention in New York um, a couple of days ago, and he had a panel... A panel that was um, um, emceed by Austin Walker from Waypoint, which is weird and cool, because um, he's one of the reasons why I got into Gundam was listening to him talking about it on on their podcast. So that was just like a weird thing. It's like, oh, that's cool that he got to meet him. That's fucking amazing. Um, but yeah, so Yoshiki Tomino did a panel, and he talked about a lot of stuff, um, and it is fascinating listening to interviews um, with Yoshiki Tomino. So I would recommend people go seek out um, there are like bunches of Twitter threads and articles and stuff translating um, and sort of conveying his answers to questions because um, he had a lot of like interesting things to say um, about his relationship with Gundam and anime and all that kind of stuff. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm excited for this. Go get your tickets if you haven't already. Um, because who knows? Maybe if this does well, they'll do other Gundam movies in theaters. I want F91. <laughs> That's what I want. There was a this. It was not a Fathom event thing, so it was much more limited. So I couldn't go see it. But there was a Gundam F ninety one thing that played in some theaters, like I think over the summer. I remember Aww. hearing hearing about it on Twitter. So maybe it'll oh, happen. Yeah. To, maybe yeah. Maybe the Fathom yes. will pick up F ninety one. Do uh, do like a ridiculous. We're going to show all three of the original movie trilogy. Like just to do do your do your bullshit. Fathom, yes. get more Gundam. All right, we should do get that trending hashtag. Get more Gundam. <laughs> All right. Next, uh, I wanted to share this because I think this is really cool. There is a a Dragon Ball event that's going to be touring the U.S. next year called Dragon Ball Symphonic Adventure. This is a touring musical performance that has been touring Europe over the last couple years. And it is a 60-piece orchestra performing orchestral versions of music from the original Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z soundtracks by Shunsuke Kikuchi, the original and best Dragon Ball composer. Um, And they have as a guest at all these performances Hiroki Takahashi, who performed the original Dragon Ball theme song, Makafushigi Adventure. Um, And that, like I said, has been touring Europe. I've heard heard good things about it. They are finally bringing it to America in 2020. And luckily for me, it's starting in Chicago in March. And I live about four hours from Chicago. Um, So close enough that I I will make the the trip to go do this. Um, It is on March 27th, 2020. So if you live near Chicago, I almost missed this as well. So I just wanted to put it out there in case Dragon Ball fans are interested. Um... Tickets are, as you would expect for this sort of thing, not as cheap as you would hope. I was able to get a $45 ticket up in, like, the balcony section, so it wasn't that bad. Of course, Ticketmaster adds exorbitant fees. Fuck you, Ticketmaster. Mm-hmm. But that's not Dragon Ball's fault. Um, this sounds fun. I've been to this kind of orchestra thing before. My brother and I did one of the, uh, the Zelda touring symphonies, and that was really cool. And I love the Dragon Ball music so much. This sounds fun, and I am excited to see Hiroki Takahashi maybe, maybe do the song. Um, that yeah. would be cool. And maybe it'll come to other cities as well. They've only announced Chicago so far. Um, but like I said, I live pretty close to Chicago. So yeah, I feel like I saw that news, Sean, and I was like, well, Jonathan, you've got an entire bookcase dedicated to Dragon Ball. If you don't do this, you're a poser. So I bought the ticket. I bit the bullet. I'm going to do it. Cool. Yeah. I had not heard about this at all. Um, that's cool. I, I have to imagine that when they start playing the spirit bomb theme, it's shit's gonna get hype up in that, Every, in that orchestra. 
everybody is going to get up and like put their hands in the air like they're yes. getting the Genki Dama. Yes. And also you should look up uh, the official promo art for this event because it's Goku playing two giant taiko drums. And it's a very good. I would love that poster. If they sell that poster at the event, I will buy it. Uh, it looks like a very it's a very good poster. All right. So that's just some fun news. Sean, do you want to do some movie news? Yep. Yep. Let's talk about what's going on with movies. I'm going to skip this first one unless you have a burning desire because I just don't. I can't today, Sean. Okay. Well, I I'll I just want to say let's do a very quick okay. version of it. Let me intro. I've it. been thinking about it too. Yeah. Okay. Okay. This this item on the outline is called "Okay, you fuckers." Let's talk about the Martin Scorsese thing. So, fuckers, Martin Scorsese a couple weeks ago on his press tour for The Irishman, his new movie that looks really good coming out on Netflix, said that he doesn't think Marvel movies are cinema. Prompting a lot of back and forth and back and forth, and then we thought it died, and then it came back again, and then it died, and then it came back again, and it will never die. And finally, Martin Scorsese wrote a really good op-ed in the New York Times Mm -hmm. where he laid out what he was trying to say, and he said, I have nothing against the movies themselves, basically, but, you know, to me, they are not the kind of cinema I love, and the kind of cinema I love, and the kind of cinema I want to make isn't getting made anymore because all that gets made are sort of Marvel movies, and the theaters are full of them, and smaller stuff gets squeezed out, hence me making my newest movie for a streaming TV company you fuckers was the subtext of it um and then just people kept misinterpreting that and misinterpreting that and then marvel people came out and said like well why doesn't scorsese try to fix the problem and it's like people let's just back up a second forget every movie martin scorsese has ever made Martin Scorsese has done more for the preservation and access of cinema from around the world from all voices and all walks of life than almost any human being alive today his opinion gets to be right here i'm sorry i'm sorry you don't get to argue with stephen hawking about physics you don't get to argue with martin scorsese about the conditions of contemporary cinema he knows what he's fucking talking about fuckers and this is coming from someone me who likes marvel movies so it's okay just stop talking about it that's my two cents sean go yeah i mean my feelings on it are not particularly different from yours it is that thing where i think there are lots of people who don't understand that even if martin scorsese had never directed a film he would still be one of the most important people in film history preservation and studies alive today it's like you know he's made some of my favorite movies and he's like one of my favorite directors even without that he's he's so important um so absolutely like when he's talking about the conditions in which movies are being made today and the the market um and and like what is you know the monopolistic effect of disney um especially after the fucking fox merger like it was bad before the fox thing it is getting so much worse where now you know they're shutting down like local theater screenings of movies like alien and stuff like that because disney is a fucking awful corporation um like all corporations are awful Disney is is especially awful because of the amount of power that it, it currently wields. Um, so when he's talking about that stuff, it's just like people should pay attention. And it's like, and he is working. He's doing more work basically than anybody to try to fix that and make a market that can exist that allows a much broader, more diverse range of movies made from a broader, more diverse range of creators at a more a broader, more diverse like level of production so that things don't have to be every movie costs like 200 million fucking dollars to be made and all this shit. Um, and, and so when he's talking about that stuff, it's just really frustrating for people to get hung up on what was like the the dumb one-liner about like marvel movies aren't cinema or whatever 
where like in that is contained i think the multitude of what he expressed in that op-ed um i do think that like i wish that scorsese had never phrased it that way because it becomes it becomes this like what is like a like centuries old thousands years old thing of like people in the victorian era saying that novels aren't art in that kind of thing um it's like that kind of phrasing has such a huge history um of being wielded in a specific way historically against like marginalized people that it does like immediately like sort of irk me like it it, like makes the hairs on the back of my neck stick up and it's like oh yeah uh, don't like you like you should never try to make that kind of argument that something doesn't qualify as being a certain level of art or something like that because history shows that those arguments are bad and 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 are like myopic in many ways and that's like my feeling on it this is like that original statement sucks i mean he's since basically said that's like well, that's just like I don't really like them, and that was his way of basically saying I don't like those movies that much, um, and that's fine. Um, and it was just like that original phrasing was poor, and I feel like everyone's gotten so hung up on that shit. It's like the Marvel movies are art; they're cinema. Like any movie, like there's no actual definition or distinct distinction between movie and cinema. Anyone who tries to construct a hard distinction between those two things, that distinction will be porous and fall down and will be maybe useful for you as an individual, but it's not useful for the art form. Don't try to make those kinds of distinctions. It's never worked well. Um, But the state of filmmaking in America and film screening in America is in the complete shitter. It's been going down the shitter for decades. It's the reason why I don't go see most movies at theaters is because just theatrical screenings are awful most of the time. Um, and, and now like the only kinds of movies I see at the movie theater is Marvel movies because sometimes it's the only movies like Parasite's not at a movie theater that's convenient for me to go see. So I can't go see that. Um, so it's like, I will go see the next Marvel movie cause I like those movies, you know, and, and I'll, I'll go out of my way to go see those in the theater. But oftentimes the other kinds of movies that I maybe would like don't always just come to the theater near me and it's really frustrating. So yeah, yeah that's, that's my feeling on it. Yeah, I think on the very narrow our Marvel movies cinema thing, he's wrong. It's stupid. Don't say it. But that is like such that's like the very tip of the iceberg and then there's all this substance underneath and like that's what we should focus on. And let me just put it plainly here. You know, I went to see Parasite yesterday and before Parasite they showed the trailer for The Irishman. And The Irishman can only be shown in certain indie art house theaters. Mhm. And I'm watching that trailer and I'm thinking, if this were 10 years ago, The Irishman would be one of the biggest, like, non-franchise hits of the year. And it would be winning, it would be up for, like, 12 Academy Awards. Like, that's what it looks like. If this were 20 years ago, it would just be one of the biggest hits of the year. If it was 30 years ago, it probably just straight up would be the biggest moneymaker of the year. Like, Martin Scorsese has kind of watched his career go in such a way where like the kinds of movies he's he makes are like the big attention getting thing to a big attention getting thing to more of a niche but attention getting thing to now there are no spaces in movie theaters to show his thoughtful adult drama because they're all showing disney movies whether that's marvel or what have you it's mostly disney right now and the irishman either gets to play on televisions 
or in very limited indie theaters that not everyone has access to. And God bless local indie theaters. They're the future of cinema. I strongly believe that. Support your nonprofit theater. That's all you're going to have soon. But, like, for Martin Scorsese, I get why he's fucking frustrated. I get it, you know? Like, this dude... I mean, think about it this way, Sean. The Wolf of Wall Street was 2013. That movie made, like, $300 million. It was this huge hit for, like, what it was. And five years later, he can't get a movie made by a studio. And he has to go to Netflix. Like, how frustrating must that be? And I'm not trying to, like, cry tears for Martin Scorsese. Obviously, he is a pretty privileged filmmaker as these things go. But he's also a serious artist who seriously cares about the business he's in. And, you know, if someone like that is calling fire, I would listen to him. That's all I'll say about that. Yeah, no, but and if Martin Scorsese... Martin, the dude who made fucking Taxi Driver and Raging Bull... And Goodfellas and Wolf of Wall Street. If that dude can't get his movie in like like broad theatrical release and he has to go to Netflix, um, like how many other like great directors are we missing out on that can't get their movies shown to wider audiences like that? Like that's it's it's Martin Scorsese and he's in that situation and and it's it it, it is just getting worse, right? Like it is like. We're only starting to feel the impacts of the Disney Fox merger. Like we're at the very beginning stages of that. And if nothing, if Congress doesn't do something and pass a law, oh, um, and to do something to try to break up like the the like mega corporations that we're like seeing um, being built right now, like it's only going to get worse. And Disney's going to swallow up something else next, you know. And it's it's really infuriating. You know, David Lynch has not had a theatrical movie made since 2006. Terrence Malick has not had a movie funded by an American company, I think since maybe 2011 or 2004. I forget who funded The Tree of Life, but like all of his 2010s work was basically French and European funded. Um, Just you can go down the lists of like great artists from the 70s, from like the generation that rebirthed American cinema and are still active and working, but are either sidelined completely on the margins or having to go to very unconventional means of getting their stuff made. And I do find that kind of sad because it also, again, if they're having trouble, imagine if you're an up and comer, that's all I can say about that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. You want to talk about Sonic the Hedgehog? <laughs> yeah. Like instead of us being talking about how movies are getting worse, let's talk about how one movie clearly has gotten fucking better. It's not going to be good, but it's going to be better than what it would have been. So Sonic the Hedgehog, let's do the the quick recap, Sean. There's this new Sonic the Hedgehog movie, uh, a live-action kind of buddy comedy starring James Marsden and Jim Carrey. Uh, earlier this year, we got a trailer with a Sonic the Hedgehog design that was just pure and clean nightmare fuel that looked nothing like Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh, the movie also looked bad, but it was almost hard to talk about how the movie looked bad because the Sonic was so horrifying. So they, they said, okay, we're going to redesign Sonic. And they pushed the movie to Valentine's Day 2020, February 14th. And now, uh, this week, we finally got the new trailer, which shot right to the top of YouTube's trending page. It was like a very highly viewed trailer because we were all fascinated. And they did it. Sonic looks fucking great. Yep, yep. It's a really good, like, it is as good as you could imagine a Hollywood 3D CG Sonic looking. Like, it is like, that's fucking Sonic the Hedgehog. He looks good. It's, that's Sonic. You look at yep. him run. He's joking around. He's having a fun time. This is fucking Sonic Hedgehog. Yeah, he looks great. He looks good in the environments. Like everything about like they. It's it's night and day. 
Like, kudos to every artist who worked on it. It's incredible. It's a really good-looking Sonic. I also want to say, Sean, like, how much do you want to bet that exact design was pitched, like, three years ago and rejected by the studio? Yeah, like, I'm sure that there is, like, as soon as, like, the call came, it was like, the internet is freaking out. Like, we're getting death threats. We have to change the Sonic the Hedgehog. We have to change it now. And then, yeah, like, the lead, like, CG artist at the the effects studio just, like, opens up a drawer. is like, takes out, like, a hard drive or something. It's like, well, here we go. Here's the thing we were doing, like, a year ago that you guys fucking scrapped and said we had to make this monster. So let's just reboot this hard drive up and start working on it again. It's a hard drive where someone has written in Sharpie on it, good Sonic. Yes, this is the good Sonic hard drive. Take out the bad Sonic hard drive, put in the good one. Yes. The movie itself, though, Sean, honestly, I thought this trailer was even worse than the first one in terms of, like, everything around Sonic. Boy, who boy, it looks bad. I mean, they didn't have Gangsta's Paradise play. They traded okay. out Gangsta's Paradise for Blitzkrieg, uh, Blitzkrieg Bop, which is an objectively much better song for Sonic the Hedgehog. Like, it, uh, it's, I, I, I think I honestly prefer the second trailer. Like, regardless of the Sonic the Hedgehog situation, I'm not saying that I think the movie's going to be good. I'm not going to go see the movie. But I think I enjoyed the second trailer's construction more than the first's. I think Blitzkrieg Bop is one of those songs that if I could go back in time and kill the people who made it at birth, I would. You'd go kill the Ramones? I fucking hate Blitzkrieg Bop. It is one of my most hated songs. It is so ludicrously overused. When Spider-Man Homecoming did it at the end, I think I audibly groaned. I hate that song. That song can go die in a hole. It fits better for Sonic. Fuck that song. I hate it. So, Jonathan, I think we've now arrived at why you really don't like this trailer compared to the first one. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. Okay, take that out. It's also like, Jim, okay, there was less annoying Jim Carrey, but there was more dense annoying Jim Carrey. Like, 20 seconds of this trailer is just him screaming into the camera, nonsense gibberish. Like, I don't think Jim Carrey was directed in this movie, Sean. I think they just said, go, Jim Carrey, fly. And Jim Carrey's version of fly is... There, that's my Jim Carrey impression. Jim Carrey's also an anti-vaxxer. Fuck Jim Carrey. Yeah, no, fuck Jim Carrey. Like, I will say, the first... Do you remember the gag the first trailer ended on, which was like Sonic the Hedgehog was in a bag that James Marsden was was holding? And, like... This trailer's, like, version of that gag is, like, Sonic runs and goes gets rubber balls because he wanted to see the giant rubber ball band. That, ga- that gag was okay. Yeah, right, okay. like, like this, this trailer has, like, two gags, like, like Sonic sliding over the hood of the car and getting in the seat. He's like, that was awesome. And I'm like, yeah. Like, the, like there are moments in this trailer where, where I, like, almost, like, I didn't crack a smile, but I thought about cracking a smile, and that's so far above and beyond what the first trailer managed to elicit from me. Um, you know what did make me crack a smile? The first ten seconds of the trailer is Sonic running around like Green Hill Zone, and it looks yeah. so good. Why can't we have that movie? Why can't we have a movie that's like cool, realistic CGI environments of the game, and you could make a Tails character and stuff like that? And like, why do we have to do it as, like, the Smurfs movie with annoying people doing annoying things? It looks so bad. They fixed Sonic. Good on them. It looks awful. Also, I really... The guy who is playing Sonic... Um, ben Schwartz? Yeah, Ben Schwartz. I like him a lot. 
he was clearly directed to do a Ryan Reynolds impression. He is mm-hmm. so clearly doing Ryan Reynolds Detective Pikachu. It's eerie, and it's like I I would bet everything I have that they tried to get Ryan Reynolds to play Sonic. They couldn't get him to do it, and so they got Ben Schwartz because it sounds so much like they are trying to do a Detective Pikachu thing. Yeah. But for the real thing about this trailer for me, Jonathan, was after watching it the first time, I then saw a side-by-side of the new Sonic and the old Sonic. And I have to say, seeing like a good-looking CG Sonic makes the old one all the more inexplicable. It's like I had this moment of just like, what the fuck happened? How did did that thing ever happen? Because it's... Because there are things about the new Sonic that I hadn't realized were so drastically different from the old one. Like the legs and arms I had forgotten were so human in the old Sonic. Like he's got like realistic looking calf and thigh muscles. It's like what the fuck did they do? What the fuck happened for that first one? Because it's like – because also the new one has big cartoonish eyes. Um, that are really expressive. In the old one, it's just these dead, glassy fish eyes. It's like, how did this ever occur? How did a human being ever allow this to happen? Because it's so fucking horrifyingly awful. And I had, like, not seen it for so long. And having, like, here's a competent, like, studio-made version of this next to the old one. It is truly baffling to me that that was something that ever occurred. Even for Hollywood, it is beyond the pale that that is a design that went through. All the way to like them putting the trailer out. It really is amazing. And I think I saw some narrativizing online this week of like, uh, fans bullied the studio into doing this. And look at all those artists who had to work overtime. And like, yes, I do feel bad for the artists who had to work overtime. But the fault of that lies squarely at the feet of the studio. Because in my memory, Sean, no one was bullying the sonic people when that trailer came out we were all laughing about how bad it was my guess is that everyone involved in actually making that fucking movie knew how bad it was and they basically took all those notes from twitter brought it to some ceo at the company and was like we told you we fucking told you and he was finally like okay fix it but to me the fault on that goes squarely to like the movie and the studio not fans who rightfully made fun of something that looked stupid it looked stupid they fixed it I, I do feel bad if people were overworked. I hope the conditions were good, but like that's the company's fault for fucking up and making a bad movie. Yeah, and then it's the company's fault for if if you know, and I'm assuming probably they were overworked because they would have been overworked had had the movie come out at its original time or not. Like, and I imagine this probably did make it worse. But that is also still the company's fault. Like, it's their it's their fault for the policies that caused that overwork and them not pushing the movie back further and all kinds of like, you know, like the labor practices. We talk about labor practices in the video game industry a lot on this podcast. The labor practices in like the movie VFX industry are just as bad, if not worse. So that it's, it's, I think it's weird to blame the fan backlash for that because also the fans have no capacity to make those conditions better. The studios have the capacity to make those conditions better. I think we have the right to mock there what again is not just a bad sonic the hedgehog design what is like in an utterly baffling incomprehensible horrifying fucking nightmare that they put together because it is like if you haven't seen it in a while look up some images because it is so crazy i know people focused on the teeth and the teeth are awful but the teeth are just the tip of the fucking bad sonic the hedgehog iceberg because the whole thing is just atrocious 
the one really thing is. I the one thing I really wish they had done is I wish they had both you know had their new movie trailer. I wish they had put out the exact same trailer as last time, just with the new Sonic, so you could have the one to one comparison. Um, just just to see, just to like, because there are a couple of shots that are shared. Mostly, it's the one of him screaming. Um, which also gives like a good comparison because you see just how lifeless the old Sonic was. That it, clearly its rig was not designed for like cartoonish facial expressions, which is a funny thing to do in your movie without a cartoon hedgehog to not give him cartoonish facial expressions to sell your like dumb joke. Um, but like you have a couple of shots you can do side by side. But I wanted the full tableau of everything with old Sonic, new Sonic, just just to get the get the whole thing out there for us. Well, once the movie's out, I'm sure someone will cut together the exact trailer comparison to the original. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Just to, I, I need it for, like, closure or something, just to put the whole thing to rest. Yes. All right. Let's talk about a movie that increasingly seems like it's going to be something special, which is mm-hmm. The Batman. The new Batman movie made by Matt Reeves uh, over at Warner Brothers. Um, there's a bunch of casting uh, that came out in the last couple weeks. So we already knew that Robert Pattinson was going to be Batman, Zoe Kravitz would be Catwoman, and Paul Dano would be the Riddler. We have now learned that they have cast Jeffrey Wright as Commissioner Gordon. You'll know Jeffrey Wright from a bunch of things, including Westworld, uh, mm-hmm. and he's Felix Leiter in the James Bond movies. They have cast Andy motherfucking Circus as Alfred the Butler. Andy Circus as Alfred, that's so good. Uh, Colin Farrell is in talks to play the Penguin, which A plus out of left field casting on that one. Uh-huh. And they have also cast a newcomer named Jamie Lawson to play a mysterious character named Bella, a grassroots political candidate running for office in Gotham, which means Robert Pattinson will again be playing opposite a woman named Bella. Uh, there's already speculation this character is actually Batgirl. Uh, in any case, you've got all of that. Michael Giacchino is going to be doing the score, which I think is cool. And Grieg Fraser is the DP. Grieg Fraser shot Rogue One. He shot Zero Dark Thirty. He actually shot The Mandalorian as well on Disney+. Plus. So really mm. good DP. Um, I don't know, Sean. All signs point to, to yes on this one. That is a phenomenal cast lineup. And my favorite thing about every one of those pieces of casting is that it's you see the actor and you go, huh. Because it's not who you would have thought of. And then you think about it and go, oh. And then you go, that's really good casting. And that's the best kind of casting. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to see um, Andy Serkis' performance capture as the CG Alfred. Because I imagine that <laughs> that's why you cast him, right? They're going to turn Alfred into like a fish man or something and get, get Andy Serkis in there. What um, if they do Alfred like <laughs> um, the AI in, uh, in, uh, in Iron Man? Like Paul Bettany did, what's his uh-huh. name? Uh, uh, Vision and um, um, Jarvis. Yeah, Jarvis. And now Alfred is like Jarvis. What if they did that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, there's just like a weird like AI construct that pops up sometimes that is performance capture Andy Circus. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, I'm with you. Like this casting, every piece of casting is so interesting. And it is the exact thing of like, it's Jeffrey Wright. Um, and like, I wasn't a huge fan of season one of Westworld, which is all I've seen of Westworld. But he is really fucking good in Westworld. And, and getting that is like, oh yeah, I can see, like, I can I can both see why you'd cast him as Gordon. It's not the ca- actor I would ever have th- think of, but I can kind of see why you'd cast him. And I would also like see... Like with the direction he could take that character in, um, which is, and that's true of all these um, actors they've cast. Like Colin Farrell as the Penguin, fucking. Every time I think about it, it's just like, oh my god, that is so. I can't wait to see what he does it, it's because it's such a cool it's piece so, of casting. 
Like, like, because here it is. Because, like, Jeffrey Wright is just... Jeffrey Wright is one of those guys who elevates everything he's ever been in. He is just the consummate, phenomenal character actor. Yeah, And so absolutely. he's perfect for this. But Colin Farrell, I love the idea of, like, who are we going to get to be Penguin? Let's get one of the most famously handsome men on the planet, Colin Farrell... And have him be Penguin. That's brilliant. That's fucking yeah. brilliant. Because Colin Farrell has what you want there, which is one of the most handsome men on the planet. And also he's a fucking weirdo in mm-hmm. movies. And he can be a really good fucking weirdo. And you put those together. And I think that sounds like a Penguin who won't be like Burgess Meredith or Danny DeVito or any of the other Penguins we've had. That's like very, very exciting to me. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm getting more and more excited about this movie. It just seems like it's going to be a very different take on at least a movie version of Batman um, because we have had so many fucking movie Batmans at this point that we desperately need something to go in a very different direction. And this seems like that's what it's going to be. So it, it also feels like, although we haven't had any co- confirmation of this yet, it really feels like we're heading towards we're going to get some version of the Bat family in this. Mm-hmm. You know, I would be very surprised if this movie has no nods to Robin or Batgirl or something in there. Because if Batman's going to be taking on a whole army of villains, he's going to need a friend. Yeah, exactly. Or at the very least, like if they're if they're not in this movie, there's like a nod to them like setting that up for a sequel or something. Because that is like that one like massive area of Batman that is just almost completely unexplored in the movies. The only ones that really do it is like Batman and Robin. Is uh, there, the Joel is there... Schumacher too, Batman Forever yeah. also. Yeah, Batman yeah, I forgot Batman he's in Batman Forever also. So yeah, so you you get a little bit in the Joel Schumacher ones, but other than that, like it's just a for something that is a mass has been a massive factor in every piece of Batman media since the forties, because Robin was introduced in Batman super early on, it's a weirdly unexplored part of the movies because they're you know like the Arkham games have a bunch of stuff with Robin and Nightwing and stuff. So I'm I'm yeah I'm excited to see what this, where this movie goes. I'm also just like you know it's it's been something we've known for a while. Um, obviously because it was since the movie was announced, but let's not forget like the, the original bit of awesome casting, which was Robert Pattinson as Batman, which is, which is the best piece of casting so far. Um, that I'm, I just really want to see a trailer just so we get a sampling of what this stuff is going to look like. Cause it, I think it's going to be good. The best thing is that we're going to get years of very weird Robert Pattinson interviews. Have you seen some of his recent press tour stuff for... Uh-huh. I forget what movie he's even doing right now, but he's just been asked questions. The, my favorite one was this long answer he gave about how he really wanted to play a ballerina, uh, do a ballet movie, and his agent was like, do you do ballet? And he's like, I've never done ballet, that's why I want to do a ballet movie. And his agent couldn't get him a ballet movie, and he was really sad, and he wants to do a ballet movie, and I'm thinking Matt Reeves... You could very easily do Batman doing ballet. Just Scarecrow night gasses him and he's on stage. I mean, that's very easy, guys. It's part of his ninja training, you know? It's, yeah. It's, he's, it's like, steps softly. I love that. That's like that's like when Tom Cruise says, like, I want to learn how to fly a helicopter, so we're going to do a big <laughs> helicopter thing in Mission Impossible 6. And Robert Pattinson's version of that is, I want to learn how to do ballet, so can you get me a movie where I play a, a ballet dancer? Oh, I love it. I love... I just love that whole outlook on life, which is like, I'm looking for roles that challenge me, but, you know, he's like a millennial, you know, Gen Zer type, so it's not like really like hyper-masculine, like, you know, old 80s types of challenges. It's like, no, I want to learn to dance. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's like, I, I, I just really want to learn how to write, like, ancient haiku. Can we get, like, a thing where it's, like, a dude who, like, learns how to write haikus really well or something? Because, man, it seems like that'd be fun. I just don't have the time for it. I want to make a movie about calligraphy, goddammit. Yep. All right. Let's move on, Sean. You want to do some gaming news? Yeah, because there's there was a surprising amount. Because um, this XO19 event was not really on my radar until a couple of days earlier, where it seemed like there's news got out that oh shit, there's gonna be they're gonna announce shit at this thing. It's not just gonna be a red like another just random event where nothing comes out, which it feels like both Sony and Microsoft do every now and then. Um, and we just got a lot of announcements all of a sudden. Yeah, so this was the Microsoft XO19 event. Let's go through a couple of these. This isn't everything they showed off, but it was everything I found interesting. Uh, Obsidian, which is now part of Microsoft, has a new game called Grounded that will be in early access on Xbox this spring. Um, It basically looks like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the game. A bunch of kids get shrunk. You're in a yard. Everything's big. Sounds like a cool idea. Um, This is, I think, the first time Microsoft has done early access on a first-party game. So that's kind Mm -hmm. of interesting. Because they have that Xbox preview program, but they usually do it for other people's stuff like PUBG or uh, We Happy Few. Like, they wound up buying that studio, but that was after it was in Xbox preview. So, yeah, but now they've got uh, for one of their own games. And this is the first thing Obsidian is making for them. Yeah. Jonathan, what does it say that when you said, oh, like Microsoft has never done early access for one of their first-party games, and I almost immediately said Sea of Thieves before I realized that Sea of Thieves did not come out on Game Preview Program. Nope. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay, they effectively have. The, the, the Master Chief Collection apparently isn't being finished <laughs> until this December, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but on this Obsidian game, so for people who, who forgot or don't remember, like Obsidian is the studio that just put out The Outer Worlds, um, which I talked about at the top of this show. Uh, and so this is kind of a weird game for them to be making, just because, as far as I know, Obsidian has only ever made RPGs. Like, uh, like you know, some are, like, really hardcore RPGs, some are more action RPGs, like KOTOR 2 or Alpha Protocol. But, like, they are an RPG studio, and Grounded is very much not an RPG. Like, it seems like it's a, like, multiplayer survival kind of game. Um, so I'm really curious how that turns out. Like, it's cool that the studio is branching out um, and trying something very different. Like, that usually seems to be very healthy for studios, especially after just how kind of, like, you know, even though I enjoyed a lot of it, like, stayed in Placid, uh, the Outer Worlds feels as a video game that is just so a game from, like, 2011 to 2012 that then maybe, like, shaking it up with doing a totally different genre. And, you know, Grounded, this certainly doesn't seem like a game that I'm personally interested in, but I'm curious to see what kind of effect that will have on the studio on going forward when they go back to making games that are more what they're known for. It's It feels like Microsoft asked Obsidian, like, you know, I know you're putting out this Outer Worlds game, but, like, could you make us something small and, like, mm-hmm. immediate and almost, like, tech demo-y just to, like, show off what you can do? And it feels like that's what Grounded is. So it feels like kind of their first salvo as a Microsoft studio, and it's something they'll probably build on more than it'll be its own, like, big living thing. But I think it's a cool experiment, and it, it shows the kind of thing, hopefully, that Microsoft's can do with some first parties is let them just experiment and play around which is something playstation lets their people do and it works to good effect Mm -hmm. yeah so 
Then we've got uh, Don't Nod was there. They're the creators of Life is Strange, and they are creating a three-episode uh, game, so episodic like Life is Strange, and it's called Tell Me Why, uh, starring a transgender male protagonist. They are working with Glad uh, for what they want to be on a, quote, authentic experience, although no trans people appear to be working on the game itself. Uh, on the game staff, at least, it's more like in an advisory capacity. Um, but I think, from what I could gather, I think the reaction to this seemed sort of like cautiously positive. Yeah, it's it's a weird one. Of um, one thing, I just want to like get out of the way because I was just thinking about it, and it's not really relevant. I think the more interesting discussion. But one thing that Don't Not did also say is that all three of the episodes are going to release over the course of summer 2020. Um, which is finally one of these episodic games has figured out that one of the biggest barriers for most people to playing these episodic games is that it takes like three to five months between episodes and you never know when one episode is done when the next one's going to come out. So they're just saying, oh, we're getting them ready in a state that we will be able to put them out over the course of like a three to four month period. Um, that is smart. I'm glad that one of these studios is finally doing that for these fucking games. Um, as far as like the trans representation thing... Um, people should read um, Patrick Klepek's article on Waypoint slash Vice Games, whatever their branding is these days, because um, he's the one who interviewed them and kind of broke the story that the that it's all like advisory stuff. They said like basically they have trans people who are part of like the playtesting team, um, so they get feedback that way. They're working with people from Glad, which already like the sort of queer community, trans community, their relationship with Glad is not just like yeah it's more complicated than that so it's it's it i think the thing that's frustrating and obviously like we're both cis dudes so there's only so much we can say about this but it is this immediate thing of like i think we need to be out of the space where it's oh we're telling like by we're i mean like you and me jonathan like or in us like like cis people or straight people telling trans stories or queer stories or like white people telling black stories right and like telling stories of people that come from very different backgrounds from ourselves and trying to pass that off as like we're it's like diverse representation technically but without like diverse creators actually creating that representation and i think we need to get to the place where like that's not what we mean when we're yes. talking about representation, we need to get to the place where it's like, I'm not saying that cis people can't be working on the game or that they can't be like the director of the game or that a cis person can't be on the writing team. Like, but to have, but to basically like have them say, as far as we know, no trans people are actually developing the game. Um, that's basically what they told Patrick Klepek. Um, and certainly it's not like the main writing team. There's no trans person on that. And it's just like, why not? Like, why would you make this game without going and hiring a trans writer or a trans game creator? It's not like there's not hundreds of them, if not thousands, of, like, well-known, well-regarded trans creators in the game community who make small indie projects all the time. Like, I follow, like, a dozen or so on Twitter, you know? Like, it's, yeah. it's not like you can't go find someone to hire that's working on small projects that you could um, bring into the studio at least to work on this game. Um, and it's really, it's just really frustrating that, that this is the best that it gets basically, um, still is like cis white people, cis straight white people telling these stories, which is the same thing it was for Life is Strange. Like Life is Strange got largely popular in the queer community because, um, like one of the pathways you could play that game through 
on the original season one was to have the main character um whose name i'm forgetting but the main character enter a queer relationship um with another with with her best friend um and like that is that game was like you could also enter a straight relationship with a male character in that game so it wasn't like just like here's this like queer story um but it was one of the options in a time when that is not an option you usually had um and so that community did latch onto that but it does over time it's very clear like that is it's it's like straight people were making that game and telling that story And and it's straight dudes mostly not even women so that's just, like, the thing that I've been thinking about a lot since then. Like, I, I don't want this to be a, like, you can't make this game because it is probably still better than nothing. That, like, like the progress of hopefully this then opens doors in the future for um, more authentic representation. But but it, I don't... By, I feel like we could have that progress now. I feel like it shouldn't be that big of a step. Um, and so it is very frustrating to me. Here's an allegory I'll give you, Sean. <clears throat> I have been, there's a great podcast that I've probably referenced here before called You Must Remember This. It's hosted Mm -hmm. by a a scholar um, uh, and a film critic uh, named Karina Longworth, who uh, the the show basically explores sort of unknown or underrepresented Hollywood history. And she does all these different series on things like The Blacklist or the Charles Manson era uh, in Hollywood and things like that. Her current series, which I would highly recommend people listen to, is about Song of the South, the infamous Disney movie that is notably not on Disney+. Plus. Yes. And one of the recent episodes, she talked about the writing process of Song of the South. And if you don't know, Song of the South is a movie, the, the main, well, the main character is a little white boy, but it has the, the sort of main figure in the movie is Uncle Remus, played by James Baskett, who is a former slave on this plantation. Um, and it's got a lot of, you know, black characters in it who are slaves or former slaves. And, what, you know, nobody at Disney set out to make a racist movie. They didn't sit down, and Walt Disney, like, didn't chomp a cigar and go, how can we stick it to all the black audiences in America? Like, that wasn't the goal. They actually thought they were maybe making something kind of cool and hopefully, like, crossing some lines and, you know, that sort of thing, right? I don't think Walt Disney would have used the word progressive because that's not who he was. But, Mm -hmm. you know, they didn't think they were making something regressive. So Walt Disney, when they were writing the script, brought on a number of advisors and people who he thought could help make it more... Um, of the time, including one white writer who was a card-carrying communist, which Walt Disney just, you know, was not a fan of, let's say, if you know the history of Walt Disney and communists. Um, But he hired this guy and had him do a pass and did not take on a lot of his feedback, but he showed it to him, he showed it to some other people. What Walt Disney never did, and what he never considered doing, as far as we know, and what no studio executive in Hollywood in the 1940s would have ever considered doing, as far as we know and as history has shown, is actually say, what if we hired a black person to write Song of the South? What if we took Song of the South and hired a black writer to write this movie and have it be their POV on it? That did not, as far as we know, occur to them. And Karina Longworth goes through this. That would have been the actual transgressive thing to do. I think that is fully analogous to where the industry is right now on... on LGBTQ content yeah um, and and I think in some areas it's better than others there is certainly more um, I would say like gay and lesbian and bisexual representation behind the scenes of some movie projects not nearly enough but oh my god I mean when you get to trans people it's it's just a crapshoot I mean we're barely getting to the point where they actually let trans people play trans people yeah 
which I think is analogous to like the blackface era of Hollywood, where you wouldn't let black people on screen. So if you had a black character, you would just slap a white person in blackface. There's not a huge difference in that within a, with a cisgendered person playing a trans person. So we finally sometimes let trans people play trans people. What we don't do is let trans people behind the scenes write, direct, shoot, whatever you want to do. And so I feel like this is very analogous to that Walt Disney example. And that's not me saying that Don't Nod's game will be as thuddingly wrong as Song of the South was to like race relations. But it's similarly problematic when the least you could do is not advising roles. The least you could do is hire a writer. Yeah. That's, that's the least you could do. They're doing below the least you could do. And so when I say cautiously positive, I want, you know, I think people are like happy that there is a, cause there has never been a game of this stature with a trans male protagonist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's cool. I think a lot of people like that, but then it's like, but you know, you couldn't hire a trans writer. That's, I mean, let alone, let's say you didn't want to find someone with game design experience, which there are plenty of those people, obviously, but there's obviously even more people who are trans people who can write. Writing is not a specialized skill for, you know, it's writing. So like, this is crazy. Um, Yeah. So I think like this, the song of the South example, just, I, I thought of that as you were talking and I think it's a, you know, that is the kind of moment we're in right now. Yeah. And in like it, another like a recent, a very recent example of, of something that does something like this, but does it the right way is actually the outer worlds. Um, Parvati, the character I talked about at the beginning briefly, she's the best companion character. She's the most interesting. Um, her whole quest line in the game, like with her basically, like if you think of Mass Effect 2, like her loyalty mission kind of thing is um, she has this massive crush on this other character you meet named Junlei, who's a woman. And, um, basically she wants to go on a date with June Lei and you do all this stuff to kind of help set up the perfect date. Um, it's a really good quest line. It feels very unique, um, amidst the other kind of story content in that game, which is one of the reasons why it shines really bright is because it's, it stands out so much amongst the rest of that game. Um, but also, uh, Parvati is ace or asexual. And that's a like perspective that most games just, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a game have an ace character certainly not a big budget game like outer worlds or at least relatively big budget compared to something indie um and also patrick klepik who's just done some like put out some like really fucking amazing stuff at vice games over the past like month if you have not been following him on twitter you should follow him because like his wow thing with wow classic was also great and he also had a big interview with the writer um of parvati who the main writer for that character is an ace woman and so she channeled a lot of her own personal experiences and feelings into Parvati and in like creating this character also voiced really, really fantastically by Ashley Birch. Um, who's just like one of the best, like up and coming video game voice actresses. Like she's in so much great stuff now. She's also the main character in horizon zero dawn. Um, but like, I think one of the main reasons why everybody responds so positively to Parvati is especially the LGBTQ community and the asexual community respond really positively to her because it is, it feels like authentic representation because it is authentic representation for a community that is all like completely ignored, even by sections of the queer community is often ignored. But then it also like, there's an authenticity to the character that I think expresses itself to people who are completely ignorant to that and don't care about representation or have no stake in that kind of game. Um, the character comes across as like authentic and honest and that's something that no matter who you are 
it communicates something to you about like the truth of this character and she's the best written character in that game and i think part of it comes from that is like how real she feels um so if you're trying to make a game like that and you are a straight cis white dude hire some people that are from the community that you're trying to write a story to represent again i'm not saying that you can't be a part of that project but it's not your story you should involve the people from that community and not in an advisory role in a creative capacity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're just, you know, I think by the year 2019, we could say if a, if a white writer wants to write a story about a a black family or something, that's not the most problematic thing in the world because that's not like completely unusual and like closed off the possibilities. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. But I do think there's so few opportunities to work with trans people in games whatsoever that, yeah, I think at this point in history, I don't know if I really care what cis people have to say about the transgender experience because they haven't lived it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's, it's, we don't live in a, like, fully integrated, unified society on that front. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, let's move on to much sillier things. Uh, Rare announced their new game. Earlier than I thought we would see a new thing from Rare, and it is called Everwild. It's a very colorful, sort of got Breath of the Wild-esque graphics, kind of even pushing further into the sort of cell-shading, uh, cartoony graphics. Looks like an open-world sort of exploration game in, in its, in, out in nature. It's got a co-op component like uh, Sea of Thieves. We don't know much else about it, but Rare's working on it. And, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad Rare is kind of thriving over there at Microsoft because we thought they were dead for a while. Yeah, it's it's a you know it's the trailer doesn't really kind of communicate much about what the actual game is, but it is very good looking. I'm guessing that it's going to be a while till we see this game actually come out, especially if you think about how many times they showed the Sea of Thieves before Sea of Thieves came out. That I'm guessing we're like this is probably going to be like a 2021, 2022 kind of game. It's um, an Xbox Two game. It's definitely oh, an Xbox well, Two game. Yes, absolutely. Like you know, maybe there will be. I mean, everything will be backwards compatible. So what's the point? But maybe there will be like here's our Xbox One version that you can also put out or whatever. But um, yes, it is clearly going to be far enough away. It'll be a next gen game. Um, but it's got a very good aesthetic. Like it almost feels like um, like cutesy Annihilation. You know, where, like, Annihilation had all, like, these weird animals with, like, the fungus stuff and all that. Like, the the animal designs are just offbeat enough, but it's not menacing in any way. But, like, the way the antlers on, like, their weird deer have, like, these big, like, unfurling, like, fungi, mushroom-looking things to them. Um, I'm, I'm really into the, the artistic aesthetic, even if I have no idea what the actual game is going to be. Absolutely. Um... You'll like this, Sean. Yes. Yakuza 0, Yakuza Kiwami 1, and Yakuza Kiwami 2 are all being ported to Xbox One. They're all coming to Xbox Game Pass, and they're all coming in 2020. This is, correct me if I'm wrong, the first time Yakuza has left the PlayStation Playground. Yes, absolutely. Um, it is, you know, Yakuza is one of those games that has just been like one of those like weird soft exclusives that Sony gets because... The, the Xbox doesn't sell anything in Japan and it's not like a like Nintendo friendly kind of game like you know you could put Yakuza on Nintendo consoles I'd, it would be cool if they did um, but it doesn't like immediately jump out at you as a Nintendo branded kind of game um, so it's like just like sort of like those it's like well Sony is just like the, the nicest home for it there's no deal as far as I know there's never been a deal between Sony and Sega on Yakuza uh, it just has always kind of worked out that way. So if you have not checked out Yakuza, it's very good. 
Um, if people are confused about where to start and you only have an Xbox um, and you want to start playing these games, you want to play Yakuza 0 first. Um, because while Kiwami is a remake of the first Yakuza game, it, in, it inserts a lot of stuff that sort of calls back to the prequel they made of Yakuza 0. So you should start with Yakuza 0, then play Kiwami, Kiwami 2. And then hopefully this means that then the um, remastered versions of 3, 4, and 5 that are coming out will eventually come to Xbox and then ideally like 6 um, in Judgment and stuff like that. Because if more people get to play those games, awesome. Um, Yakuza 0... Some might say is one of the past, best games of the past 10 years. Who knows? <laughs> we'll find out, Sean. We'll find out. I also want to mention the, the Xbox Game Pass thing because Microsoft is going really hard on this. Yeah. And the other big signal of that, and I forgot to put this on the outline, Sean, but um, they also announced that all the Final Fantasies that are on Xbox are going to Game Pass. Mm-hmm. So that means Final Fantasy 7, 8, 9, 10, 10, 2, 12, all of which are the new versions for Xbox One, and then the Xbox 360 versions, which are backwards compatible, of 13, 13, 2, and 13, 3. So every Final Fantasy game that plays on an Xbox will be on Xbox Game Pass. That is huge, and they also very, like Phil Spencer was asked about this, he says they're working on Final Fantasy 14. He says they really want 14 on Xbox. He says Square Enix is they're looking at it and they want to figure it out. They say the big thing is he wants to make sure it's, you know, cross compatible with everything else. So, and and then he says he also wants it in Game Pass. So like I think their goal very clearly is that the vast majority of things that will be on Xbox will be on Game Pass and I think they want every Xbox owner to own Game Pass and I don't know if that is viable in the long run because that yeah. is a huge, huge shift in the financial model of gaming. But it is very clearly a place Xbox is planting their flag. And I think for a while, Game Pass has felt like a cool experiment. I think it is, at this point, Sean, kind of unthinkable to be using the Xbox without it. And clearly it's going to be one of the bedrocks of the Xbox 2 and could be, if it works, a sea change in the industry. I would be keeping an eye on this. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I mean, the over the summer when I had um, access to my parents' Xbox because they were on that trip, like that was what I did. Is I like bought the month for of like for like a dollar or whatever after E three of Xbox Game Pass, and I played Outer Wilds. I played a little bit of Forza Horizon Four, whichever one it was. Um, and kind of just played around with Xbox games, and it was, and it is a cool service. I'm like you have like I'm very curious to see like what the ultimate impact of that's going to be. Um, like it's something where this and then um, the Apple whatever the Apple one is called that they did for iPhone Apple games. Arcade, yeah, Apple Arcade. Um, like I'm curious to see what the impact of that is going to be in terms of how like games are manufactured um, and manufactured in terms of how they're created. Um, because if if this model becomes sort of like self-sustaining, it's going to then have massive impacts on the way that games are designed. In I'm curious to see if I'm curious to see if, if it's going to get to that point, or if eventually these kinds of services are going to collapse under themselves because game development is not like TV and movie development; it is more arduous um, in many many ways. And so I'm curious to see if that is going to ultimately be sustainable. Um, once it's not a thing where it's like, oh, we're just like making games the way we've always been making them and they're just going into this Game Pass service, that's fine. And then it's like Game Pass has been a thing for several years and you're making games 
like games have started pre-production after game pass has been a popular thing i'm curious if like that's going to affect stuff yeah and you know sony is not doing anything comparable they have playstation now but that's for much much older games um there's no indication that sony would ever like put you know horizon one dawn on like day one on on something like this and i don't think they probably will anytime soon so it's partially because xbox is in a position of weakness that they would do this at all but it's very interesting uh next the master chief collection is getting its next big update halo reach Uh, which had been announced a while ago, is coming to the Master Chief Collection on December 3rd. It will also be launching on PC that day as the first entry in the PC version of the Master Chief Collection, which is coming out piecemeal. Uh, Other games in the collection will be rolling out later. But finally, Sean, every major Halo game will be in the MCC. Um, Halo Reach being the last one, the last Bungie-developed one that was missing, and it'll be everything that, that you have in the other ones. It'll be 4K, 60 FPS, and they are bringing over the entire Reach multiplayer suite, which is probably why this has taken so long. That's probably the complicated part of this, uh, or the mo- more complicated part of this. I am very excited because Halo Reach is a phenomenal game. Mm-hmm. I... I do think it's a little funny that this will be after the four-year anniversary mark of the MCC. They're still putting it together. But, hey, better late than never. I'm excited to play some Halo Reach. It's interesting how it's like the, the, it feels like the story of the Master Chief Collection is like the story of micro or Xbox in this generation or something. Like It's just like it spanned almost the whole generation. It came out and was a complete fucking shit show in so many ways. And then through a lot of hard work and diligence and stick to they have built it back up to now it is a full, complete thing. Um, and thank God that the, the next generation consoles are going to be backwards compatible. Because it would be so sad if you, you finally have all the Halo games on one collection for this console. And then you'd move on to the next thing. It's like, well, time to do it again. Shit. Um, luckily, it'll just be able to go forward if you want to have all your Halo games you can have all your Halo games and and have fun playing them because they're all very good. And Halo on PC again, Sean. It has been a while. Yes, not since Halo Two for Windows Vista, the the yes. auspicious days of Windows Vista in the Windows gaming marketplace, or whatever the fuck that thing was called. Um, that has been long since shut down. Finally, you can play Halo again on PC, um, and Reach is really good. Like like if people have not played Halo Reach. Um, like I don't know how well the multiplayer will hold up, but that campaign, oh, that campaign is really fucking good. That campaign is a motherfucker. I love it. Yeah. Uh, the developer of Virginia, an indie yeah. game from a couple of years ago that we really liked, announced their new game. It's called Last Stop. It's going to be on PC and consoles next year. I am excited to spend two or three hours with whatever the hell they've cooked up. Yep, I, I believe I gave Virginia the "Please Make More of These" award because that game was really cool. They have not made more of those. So hopefully this will be another one of those because I, I really like that game a lot. And finally, they announced that Project X Cloud, their streaming initiative, will be coming to PC next year and will support more controllers than just Xbox, including the DualShock 4. So you will be able to play an Xbox game with a DualShock 4, Sean. How weird is that? That is very weird. Um, this, this news has also reminded me of something that is not on this outline that I do want to briefly address which is, have you followed anything about the utter shit show that is going on with Google Stadia right now, Jonathan? Yes, and it's very funny, but it's also such a clusterfuck. I didn't feel like doing the research, so you go ahead and tell us. Yeah, so like basically, um, for people who don't remember, Google Stadia is the, the video game streaming service that Google is starting that is like the, the launch of it is very soon. 
Um, I haven't. I don't have everything in front of me, so there's not going to be a lot of specifics. Um, oh, here we go. So it'll be, it's launching November 19th, so two days from our recording, um, one day after this will come out. Uh, and yeah, so they're, which is, it's basically, they're selling a $150 thing that has a Google Chrome cast thingy in it and a controller, and you can use that to play the games. Um, eventually Google Stadia will be free to own, presumably, and you will pay for the games individually. This is a critical key detail that I always forget, that everybody forgets, is that Google Stadia is not like Game Pass. It is not you you buy you pay 150 dollars and then you do like 10 dollars a month or something and you get all the games on the service you buy the games piecemeal presumably for full price i still think they have not actually announced the pricing we'll find out soon enough the only game you get for free if you buy the the google stadia like premium package to be able to play it now is destiny 2 and its expansions because obviously normal destiny 2 is free anyways um, although if you get the Stadia version of Destiny 2, you can only play with other people who have the Stadia version of Destiny 2. You cannot play with people who have the normal PC version of Destiny 2 because Google Stadia seems like an utter shit show. Um, there hey, Sean. Was, yeah. Sean, what better game to launch an online streaming game service with than an always online first-person shooter where latency, let's just say, might be a problem? Yes. Well... You think if that's going to be a problem, Jonathan, let me read you what is the the auspicious launch lineup for the Google Stadia. Um, you've got Assassin's Creed Odyssey. So that's an old one. Destiny 2 The Collection. We talked about that. Guilt, which is the only Stadia exclusive so far. It'll come out to other stuff eventually. Um, and it's just like a small sort of like indie horror looking game. Seemed fine. They like showed a trailer for it when they announced Stadia. Um, then you have Just Dance 2020 because... Ubisoft loves just putting their shit on everything. They need to be able to, at the next E3, when they put up the card that says Just Dance coming to all platforms, they need that to be authentic, so they're putting Just Dance on Stadia. Um, Kine, which I don't know what that is. I think it's another like sort of indie-style game. Mortal Kombat 11, Red Dead Redemption 2, Rise of the Tomb Raider, Shadow of the Tomb Raider, Tomb Raider, Samurai Showdown, and Thumper. And that is all the games. Those are all the games you will be able to play on your Google Stadia when you get it. Um, and that's it. You can play three Tomb Raider games. You can play two fighting games that I cannot imagine that playing Mortal Kombat 11 or Samurai Showdown with uh, latency is going to be doable. Um, you have two rhythm games, Just Dance and Thumper, which I, as, as impossible it is to imagine playing like an intense competitive fighting game with latency the idea of playing motherfucking thumper what is not only a rhythm game but a rhythm game that hates you and wants to murder you in a good way like thumper is great it was one of the best games of 2016 um but any amount of um additional input latency on thumper would probably either render that game unplayable or at the least utterly fucking infuriating because it's a hard game and you will die a lot if you don't don't have the right timing down um, so that's three Tomb Raider games, two fighting games, two rhythm games, Assassin's Creed, Red Dead, um, Destiny 2, and two indie games. And those are all of the games that will be available if you buy the 150 version at launch. If you buy it, and uh-huh. if you get it, because they haven't been able to ship these things, and in a Reddit AMA, <laughs> the guy from Google Stadia offered to take down people's addresses and hand-deliver the Stadia kits because they couldn't figure out how to ship things at Google. 
It's so crazy. And then and then on top of it, a bunch of like features they had announced, like the original like the original entire premise of the fucking controller that they announced when they announced Google Stadia was that their controller was special and had Wi-Fi, like a Wi-Fi hookup in it that would allow them to communicate directly with the server so you'd completely bypass the middleman of like your console or your your TV or your computer, whatever you're streaming it to. Um, so instead of streaming the inputs from the controller to the the computer, then the computer streaming that you know to the server. Instead, it's just the the controller goes directly to the server. That will not work on launch. Also, one of the announced features is that any of your Google Chromecast devices would be able to use Google Stadia at launch. That is not the case. It is only the one that they are specifically selling for Google Stadia will work at launch. Um, so if you're planning on, you know, you, you have like a couple of Google Chromecast type devices and you're hoping to buy this thing, um, you know, play Destiny 2 on like one TV somewhere and then another TV at work or something like that, um, whatever your Chromecast situation was, that is not something that will work at launch. Also, there's no kind of family sharing plan. So if you want to play Google, if you have Google Stadia and you want to play Destiny 2 with like your your like wife or someone who knows, like if someone in your family, they have to buy it separately. Um, or like, yeah, like Mortal Kombat 11, you'd have to buy it separately. Because um, again, again, that list of games that I said are not the games you just get if you buy it. You have to buy all those games separately except for Destiny 2. Um so, it seems like an absolute fucking nightmare. Like, what was already what, like, a, I thought was a, an interesting, if, like, flawed kind of uh, setup they had based on their initial launch, um, or not launch, but, like, uh, announcement event. Now that we are on the eve of that thing actually coming out for people who are paying money for it, it just seems like this thing is entirely on fire. Um, so... You know, Google has a history of shutting down projects that they've done that they didn't put full backing into and just sort of like scuttling them. And I would not be surprised if that happened to Stadia within a year or two. So, interesting stuff. All right. And finally this week for news, before we move on to some fun stuff, uh, there was a report on the Bioware game Anthem by Jason Schreer over at Kotaku. I think most people have been assuming Anthem is dead. For good reason. Uh-huh. Uh, Anthem has been completely radio silent for months. They have had no major updates. They have had no presence at EA conferences or shareholder meetings. Uh, there have been two major departures. The lead producer, Ben Irving, left Bioware. And then Chad Robertson, the head of live services at Bioware, which is pretty important for an always online live game, left the company. And I think most people have assumed Anthem was dead. But Jason Schreer's reporting is that it is actually not at all dead. Inside the company, they are working overtime, basically, to try to do a complete overhaul that is internally referred to as Anthem Next, They are not sure what form it will take, whether it will be sort of like a Taken King style Destiny expansion that just tries to sort of tweak everything enough that it brings people back in, or whether it will go full on Final Fantasy XIV, A Realm Reborn, where they just start from scratch. Um, They are still in the planning stages of that, but Bioware is not done with Anthem, uh, and EA is not done with Anthem, even though I think from the outside looking in, a lot of us might say, maybe you should cut your losses, guys, this didn't work. Uh, You know, I'm very fascinated by this, Sean, because there are a lot of models for what Anthem could do, but none of them are perfect. Like, you know, you can make the Destiny comparison, but Destiny sold well from the beginning, and the Taken King was more of a really in-depth tweak 
than it was an overhaul, and the game had been steadily improving for a year by the time Taken King came out. You could go with the Final Fantasy XIV connection, but Square Enix basically bet the farm on fixing Final Fantasy XIV and gave that team all the resources in the world and all the time they needed, and I don't see EA doing that. Also, Final Fantasy XIV sold well. And any other example you have are games that did well. Anthem bombed. Mm-hmm. And they are trying to dig a trench to fix a bomb. I just don't... There's no good comparison to how they fix this. And yeah. I think it's interesting that... I guess this is Bioware's foreseeable future. Yeah, it's it's one of those of where... You know, like I... It, sure that they are working on this overhaul i'm curious like if it like the way that the jason shire report is written it makes it feel like it's so unsteady a thing of what they're trying to do with anthem next that i would not be surprised if it actually never even sees fruition um and and yeah it, it is that thing of where yes taken king was a big sort of like watershed moment for destiny where like lapsed people who had left in um, people who like were new, they'd heard about Destiny, were interested in it, all kind of came in, and there's a big influx of interest um, in playing of Destiny. But Destiny was by no means a dead game between the launch and Taken King coming out. It was an extremely popular game that had millions of people playing it for that entire duration. Um, you know, they had they released two expansions that were not great either of them, but House of Wolves was pretty good um, and helped set that game more on the right track. And, and and no point did, did Destiny feel like it was dying or was or Bungie was cutting the cord or going radio silent. Like, Bioware has been basically radio silent on Anthem since its launch, more or less. Um, they missed every single date that they said they would do stuff for the roadmap to the point where, like, whatever that roadmap would have been is completely dead. The couple of things that they have done, like the Cataclysm event, um, like I, I kind of like follow a little bit of like whatever Anthem gets updated, just like see what's going on. None of those have those, none of those events have brought fans back. Basically everyone talks about how shitty they are every single time they put something new in the game. So it, it is this feeling of just like utter floundering um, that feels different to me than Destiny. It's probably closer to the Final Fantasy XIV situation, but that is also different because one that was an MMO. So, like Final Fantasy XIV, there's a bigger reason to do it just to like get the monthly subscriptions coming in. It's also Final Fantasy, so it has a much bigger cachet than Anthem has or ever could have. Um, and and it came out at a very different time. Like Final, the original Final Fantasy XIV came out in like 2012 or something. Like that's an old game. 2010. Um, it came out the same year as 13. Shit, you're right. Yes. So like that was a long time ago in a very different marketplace um, that didn't have the same kind of competition that Anthem has now, where everybody's putting out games like this. Like The Division Two came out this year, was well received. People played it. People liked it. It didn't do what Ubisoft wanted to do. It sold worse than the first Division. Like. This space is extremely competitive, especially because there is not a lot of room in this space because everything that every like seed that plants successively grows into a massive fucking tree because you have to spend so much time playing any one of these games to be able to get what you want out of it, right? Like you're not going to be playing Destiny for like a week. You're going to be playing Destiny for months if Destiny works. Um, Same thing with any of these games. So you like any reasonable person could only do like one or two of these in a year um and so it just feels like them trying to do this with anthem like you know 
you've got to try to like recoup your costs somehow and it's probably more cost effective to use something that has a foundation that you don't have to go through pre-production designing art assets coming up with all that shit from the ground up but boy do i think they have a ridiculous uphill battle for anything that comes out next for anthem to be able to bring people back to that game so bioware basically took a mulligan this generation Uh uh-huh we could say they had I mean, Dragon Age Inquisition any... early on, which is pretty good, but that was basically like... I mean, that had last-gen versions of this, yes. so it's like that was basically a last-gen game that got upgraded to to this generation game. Do, do you think there's any future? I mean, do you think they come back from this? Do you think Dragon Age 4 actually comes out? Like, I, I'm yeah. so... I, I, I feel like I'm waiting any day now for the announcement that EA has shut them down. Like, I feel like that's where we're probably headed in the larger world of all this or maybe they get a star wars game and they come back from the dead i don't know i don't know that feels like the most likely thing to happen but who knows yeah like it's it's i i i don't i think that dragon age 4 will come out or it will get close to coming out before if if dragon age 4 hits too many um development hurdles and that game gets canceled i think that's it for bioware I think there's a chance that Dragon Age 4 sees release, and hopefully Dragon Age 4 is good. Um, what I'm really worried about is that it's going to come out and it will be Anthem of 5, right? That it's going to, either either because it's what Bioware chooses to do, because, I mean, remember, the, the part of the original Anthem story that Jason Schreier broke... Um, a while ago around the time that game launched was that EA did not mandate that they wanted a life service game. Bioware chose to make a life service multiplayer game um, and chose poorly, clearly. Um, that's, that's an instance of where the studio took a big swing on a very different kind of game and they did not execute on it. So if if they are not able to figure out their shit for Dragon Age 4, I think that that's it. Um, but I do think I do think that Dragon Age 4 will come out. I hope so. I don't want Bioware to die. Bioware's made some of my favorite games ever. I mean, it's a very different studio now than it was. Um, But, you know, at the very least, EA put out fucking the Mass Effect trilogy on, like, what the fuck? At least do that. At least do that. That would help bolster shit. Bioware's made some great games. What if you re-released them? Like, it's crazy that people have to be clamoring for re-releases of video games because usually we're like, you guys are re-releasing too many games, try making new ones. This is an instance where I feel like everyone's like, no, please put out those games. What the fuck? And EA just doesn't do it for reasons that nobody will ever understand. All right. Sean, let's talk about some really good video games today. Yes. So we have two games to review, one of which we've both played, one of which I've played a little of. Uh, We're going to talk Jedi Fallen Order in a second, but first let's talk Pokemon Sword and Shield. We're going to do spoiler-free on both of these, and I'm guessing on our next main podcast we will do a full Jedi Fallen Order breakdown. So think of this as first impressions. Uh, For Pokemon Sword and Shield, it's very first impressions because I, Sean, am focusing on Jedi because Mm -hmm. I will be at my PS4 for about another week and then I am going on the road so I can take Pokemon with me. I can't take Jedi with me so I'm going to try to finish Star Wars and then play Pokemon but I've played about two hours of Sword and Shield and I've done some trading and battling online with my brother and some other people Um, and I really like it. I mean Sword and Shield is the funniest and most horrifying thing in games on the internet this year because people (laughs) have just lost their absolute fucking minds over a game none of them had touched and, you know, so far what I will say, it's a Pokemon game. 
if you are still 25 years later waiting for Pokemon to do a giant, like, cataclysmic change in what it is, you know, maybe maybe it's time to end the relationship. I'm yeah. sorry, but it hasn't changed. You don't need to keep playing them if that's not what you want. Sword and Shield is not a massive evolution. It has a lot of really, really nice, I think, advancements. The world is gorgeous. It's a really cool region. Um, right off the bat, they've done a lot of nice little but like significant changes. Like this game, you can skip every inch of tutorializing if you want. You can just go catch Pokemon. And then by the time they want to tell you how to catch Pokemon, the dude will be like, I was going to tell you how to catch Pokemon, but you have a Pokemon. Good job. And it just skips it. It's great. So it doesn't um, make you walk into a field and then a random old man comes up to you and is like, hey, young boy, let me show yes. you how to do. And you have to like watch a mock Pokemon battle as he like throws nope. a fucking rocket or a tatter or some shit. You can do it, but you don't have to. Thank so God. If, if it's your first Pokemon game, like for a little kid, they can watch it. But yeah, they've cut that. It's actually got a pretty um, fast starting sequence, I would say, as recent Pokemon games go. Um, it is, uh, like I so uh, I think the most notable thing for me so far is that the music in Sword and Shield kicks fucking ass. It is just rad as shit. It is, it sounds like, Dreamcast music. It sounds like sort of early 2000s, like Sega music, sort of. It's really different for Pokemon. It's really good. I love that music. It's got such a good sense of character. Um, otherwise, you know, I've only been to one or two towns. It's very, it's, it does the thing that a lot of recent Pokemon games has done, where it's like taking off on a real world location. And I think it does that very well. This Scala region is England. It's, it's fun to see all of that. Um, there is, some people are bristling at it has no voice acting. Um, and I think people just think all games need voice acting now. I'm fine with Pokemon not having voice acting, but I did in the back of my mind, Sean, because they do write British-isms in, like people calling you mate and stuff, what I want more than anything is they should have had the Xenoblade Chronicles people dub Pokemon Sword and Shield. That would have been fucking hilarious. Yes, just get your UK dub. Yes, UK dub for but they didn't do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the the starter Pokemon I think are pretty cool. I went with Score Bunny. Score Bunny is really cool. Score Bunny in battle is constantly hopping from one foot to the next, like it's it's a boxer bunny. It's very funny to watch. Um, so far, I have not seen I think any but one uh, old Pokemon in the wild. Like it's all new Pokemon off the bat, and I think they're the coolest batch of new Pokemon the series has had in. A really long time and my brother has played significantly further in the game um in part because he is always into pokemon but also he's in japan and i think he's like legally he has to right mm -hmm. because he's living in japan and apparently everyone he knows is also playing sword and shield over there um but he's played further and he says that kind of keeps up that there are some old pokemon but it's mostly new and they're really cool i really like them so far um i will report sean the funniest thing i've seen though is that thomas was reminding me of this when sword and shield were announced and there was the whole kick, you know, whatever it was, the dust up about the the national decks. Right. You and I said, well, but the cool thing about that is, is they get to just kind of concentrate on like the best of Pokemon, right? And we'll get a bunch of cool ones. And you had a line apparently in that podcast where you said they won't have to do fucking Zigzagoon or the ice cream cone Pokemon. Guess mm -hmm. what two Pokemon I currently have? <laughs> it's oh, Sword God and Shield. Damn it. Now, I'll say this. The Ice Cream Cone Pokemon, my brother got it and traded it to me. I don't know where you see it in the game. It looks a lot cooler in 3D than it did way back in black and white. Like, it doesn't just look like a JPEG of an Ice Cream Cone. Um, Zigzagoon has had a complete redesign. It's a Galarian Zigzagoon, and he okay. looks like a skunk now. And he actually looks really cool. It's an all black and white striped Zigzagoon. He glowed up. 
Zigzagoon looks good. So, so, yeah, so I mean, if they revamped Zigzagoon, it's not as if there is the Zigzagoon is by concept an awful Pokemon. Um, I mean, Zigzagoon has never been an awful Pokemon. It's more like I feel like you just. You only really need Rattata, and we're basically good. It's the same thing with Pidgey. Like, you just don't need to do another, here's your, like, weird, like, rodent Pokemon, and here's your bird Pokemon that you fight in, like, the first region every single Pokemon game. Um, that's my problem with Zigzagoon. So if they revamp Zigzagoon, that's fine. And he's not all over the place. Like, I've I found one, and from what I could tell, he's fairly rare so far. Anyway... Um, yeah, so, you know, so far, I think the writing is fun. It's, it's not as overwritten as, as, uh, Sun and Moon were. I could never get into Sun and Moon because that game is just mountains and mountains and mountains of text, and Pokemon does not need a heavy story. For God's sakes, it's Pokemon. This feels much more in the vein of, like, earlier, you know, Pokemon games where it's much more lightly narrativized, and so it moves a lot faster, um... So I'm having fun with it. I have not gotten to any of the gyms yet. I've been doing a lot of early stuff, but it's good. The 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 battle system, I mean, it's it's classic Pokemon battles. The UI is very clean and nice, though. They've had to rethink a lot of things because this is the first Pokemon game to be on a single screen since uh, Ruby and Sapphire on the mm-hmm. GBA because it's all been DS games. So they've had to rethink some things, but I think it's largely very good. Everything looks, I think, UI and everything is very clean and fun to use. You have automatic EXP share on all the way through, so anyone in your party just gets equal EXP, so it's very easy to level Pokemon. Um, you can have your box open anywhere. You do not have to go to a Pokemon Center. A lot of those little things they brought in from Let's Go, uh, including all the Pokemon are on the map now, so you can just see them and choose who you're going to battle. Although I think they've done kind of a fun kind of meet you in the middle approach there where there are while you're in the wild grass you can see all the pokemon but once in a while a little like exclamation point will pop up and the grass will rustle and you can go check what it is and that will be a mystery encounter but it's not just they randomly you still always initiate so i think it's a nice middle ground for all of that but yeah it's pokemon i think it looks like a really solid one i'm very very excited to play it it seems really fun it's got a lot of personality um but yeah i have not gone super deep into it one conclusion I have drawn is this does feel to me like a portable Pokemon game, mm-hmm. I think. And we all knew this. I think if you were hoping for the massive revolution where they made a true like home console Pokemon game and everything changed and it's in 4K and you have full control of the camera and everything, that's not what this Pokemon game is. I have played it like half handheld, half on the TV, and it feels more at home to me in a handheld and that doesn't surprise me. Game Freak has been doing this handheld for 20 plus years. And they only had three years of development time on this since Sun and Moon. And they also made Let's Go in the same time. Like, it does not surprise me that this feels a little more like a handheld game. I don't think it looks bad when you dock it and, look it, look, and blow it up on the TV. I think a lot of people are trying to say it looks bad. It looks like a Nintendo Switch game in a lot of ways. Like, people are like, there's no anti-aliasing. I got a, I got a uh, news to tell you, friends, about every Nintendo game of the last ten years. Nintendo doesn't really do anti-aliasing on their first-party games. That's there in this Pokemon game as well. Um, it looks fine, and it's very colorful, and I think the colors are, are really vivid on the TV. But, you know, Pokemon is and has always been a handheld series, and it still kind of feels most comfortable there. So, you know, your mileage may vary... If you don't want to play Pokemon Sword and Shield, I totally get it. Maybe don't go harass developers online, because I promise you there was no grand conspiracy here. They were just trying to make a Pokemon game. They made a Pokemon game. If you like Pokemon games, it seems like you'll like this one. If you have kind of fallen out of favor with Pokemon, 
that's okay. And if you feel really torn up about it, go see a therapist. Don't bitch about it online because you have bigger problems if you're that upset about a Pokemon game being a Pokemon game. Yeah, because that does, to me, that is like the biggest thing that... Because I feel because this is something that has been like brewing in the Pokemon community for a while is like a dissatisfaction with the, let's say, slothful pace at which uh, Game Freak updates Pokemon in terms of like introducing like like really new stuff and not like little tweaks or here's Mega Evolutions, which is something we'll like drop in two games or something. Um, and it's also a community that has been fantasizing since the 90s about the console Pokemon um and and what what that could be and you know who knows maybe maybe game freak will maybe the next one will be a big change probably not it's possible but it feels like this has like burst some people's bubbles that have like been cultivating a fantasy since they were children um in some ways myself concluded included i mean i didn't i haven't played a pokemon game since like emerald or whatever so it's been a long time so i don't have a big like skin in the game or anything like that but i would it's like a little bit bummed when Sword and Shield was announced to just be like, oh, okay, yeah, like this is another one of the games that they've been making. They haven't taken this opportunity to change things up in a way to like bring me in. Um, I, I'm not like upset about it, but there are people that I think have maybe like probably don't actually like Pokemon anymore, but have been clinging to that franchise for a while, hoping that it would turn into the thing that they've been wanting it to turn into. And it just hasn't. Um, and to those people, I will say this. Play Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. It's a better game than any Pokemon game has ever been. So It's very true. Yeah, so just go to Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. It's better. Um, I mean, it's still technically a handheld game, but seems like more of a console game in some ways than what Pokemon has done. Uh, so go go play Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. I think it's on the Switch now. If not, it, it uh, is. Yeah, so it's on the Switch Both now. Of them. It's on PC. It's on PlayStation. So go play Cyber Sleuth. Go play Hacker's Memory. They're great. Agumon yeah. is better than Pikachu. I will say, and one thing I need to just stress, I think people who haven't played Pokemon recently or in the last decade or two do underestimate how much Pokemon has changed over the years. And I think people who are overinvested in Pokemon underestimate how much Pokemon is going to change. Does that make sense? Or like sure. overestimate? Like, like, because Sword and Shield, I think, if you're an outsider and you're just saying it's another Pokemon game... It is more different than you think it is. I, like, it is, you put it in on your TV, the environments are much bigger and more sweeping. The colors are much more vivid. There is just more stuff going on. It is more fully fleshed out. But it is not the full console Pokemon game you've been fantasizing about. Part of that is also, I think, the thing people want, like when they're saying, like, why are there jagged lines on things? Like, it's the Nintendo Switch. Like, some of what I've been seeing people wanting is, like, the Switch can't do that, guys. Shut the fuck up. Like, some of that is is just ridiculous. But, like, you know, it, it's a series that has this set identity. And I just think that it's a certain point. It's like being in a bad relationship for years and years and expecting any day now they'll change and drop every habit I hate. Maybe you need a new relationship. And maybe Digimon is the answer. But, yeah. like, you know, I think... If you are a fan who kind of... Like, like here's my attitude on Pokemon, Sean. I try every one of the new games. And sometimes I'm really drawn in because I think they've made something really cool and solid. And that is transformative enough that it kind of brings something new to the table. I thought X and Y was that. X and Y is a fantastic game. And then I get to some like Sun and Moon where they've made some cool like changes and stuff. But it just... It was too like... 
one, I didn't think it brought enough new to the table, and I thought it was just a subpar Pokemon game. But I didn't go harass people about it. Sword and Shield feels to me like it's more on the X and Y side based on just a couple of hours, but we'll see. Um, But it's just, you know, I also go in with the expectation that fundamentally at its core, this is Pokemon, and I think you know what you're getting. It would be like bitching about Call of Duty having you run down corridors and shoot people. I don't know. It's... It's gonna, in part, it's gonna be what it is. It's, it's, and you know, it's the most successful franchise in the history of gaming. It's gonna do its thing. So, whatever. I don't know. Pokemon. If you want it, get it. If you're, if you don't want it, don't get it. If, if you think you want it, but you know in your heart of hearts that you don't, don't. Just move on. Play Digimon. It's better. And if you are passing around hashtags harassing developers who were just trying their best to make a nice game for you, I'm 100% serious. Go to therapy. You have a problem. You have a serious mental problem, and you need help. Because there are people I have seen online who just need help. It is insane. It's ridiculous, yeah. Star Wars, Jedi Fallen Order. Talking about things that never are ridiculous and never have hate mobs associated, let's talk about Star Wars. (laughs) But um. Sean, let's talk about Jedi Fallen Order. We will not be spoiling anything on it today. We will save that for a future discussion. We have both uh, been playing this game. Sean, I will just give my quick 10-second impression, which is that they could not have engineered a Star Wars game more specific to my personal interests if they had tried. And I am a very, very happy Star Wars fan this weekend. This is the Star Wars game for me, and I fucking love it. What about you? Uh, exact, exact same. Um, exact same boat. There were a couple of things... Um, that I thought the game didn't have, that it does actually have. It does have, you can turn the lightsaber on and off. I just didn't know how to do it, but you can do it. It's on the D-pad. Um, and for a while, I was very annoyed by that, and that was the biggest thing the game was missing. Um, that was that was my second biggest criticism, and I figured that out. Here's my biggest criticism of the game. They put the colon after the word Jedi in the title, technically. It's, a fu- it's fucked up, yeah. It's Star Wars Jedi colon Fallen Order. And it's like, I get it. You fucked up. You gave this game two subtitles. Um, it, that's your fault. I don't know why you didn't just call this game Star Wars Fallen Order. I have no idea why the word Jedi is. Oh, I, well, okay. I know why the word Jedi is in the title. And marketing executive said, you're playing Why would Jedi they ever put the word Jedi in a Star Wars title? Yes. What could the possible reason be? It, it might be because they literally haven't made a game like this since 2009. Since The Force Unleashed 2. It's unbelievable, Jonathan. It's been 10 years since they've made a proper fucking Star Wars action game. Um... And, and this is um, one of the best Star Wars games ever. Like, it is... it is. I mean, I'm not done with it, so if it has a, a really bad turn at some point, based on where I am, my feelings on it are, like, it is probably maybe not quite as good as Jedi Knight 2, Jedi Outcast, or those games. Um, those games have, like, a very like special place in my heart, so that's, like, nostalgia is factored into that one. Um, but it is in that echelon of the upper echelon of Star Wars games. Um, if you want to run around as a Jedi and do Jedi stuff and explore cool Star Wars worlds, hit people with lightsabers, um, use force powers to solve puzzles, all that good stuff. Um, it feels in some ways like a very modern take on what a Jedi Knight game would have been. To the point where they might as well have just called it Star Wars Jedi Knight Fallen Order, which would have been a better title than having the word just Jedi there, which is dumb. Yeah, I love it, man. So let's recap what this is for people. Uh, This is a new Star Wars game, single player, by Respawn Entertainment. Respawn uh, is the company that made Titanfall 1 and 2, and is made of former employees of Infinity Ward, uh, the company that 
Activision gutted after Modern Warfare 2. Mm-hmm. So all those people went. They made Respawn. They made Titanfall 1 and 2. And I would say, Sean, between Titanfall 1, Titanfall 2, and now this, I think Respawn is pretty well established as one of the best Western developers in the industry. Yeah. I think you can say that now. Absolutely. Especially with this, like, showing them being able to, as a studio, do a very different kind of game. Um, key to that is also the game director for this game is Stig Asmussen, um, who worked on God of Wars 1 and 2 and was the game director for God of War 3. Um, so that's where some of the pedigree for the third-person action um, and kind of third-person puzzly stuff comes from that so it's it's not just like the exact same team that made titanfall turned around and made this third person exploration action game um they it is a two-team studio um this team being led by by stig yes absolutely uh the story doesn't really matter but the story is that you have a jedi uh, padawan named cal kestis who survived order 66 it's five years after order 66 he's scrapping on a planet um events happen and now he's on a ship and he's running around looking for jedi temple shit again this is i i actually love how much this is not a story driven game it warms my fucking heart um but really what this game is it can be summarized pretty simply it is a glorious glorious blend of star wars of course but also from video game sense it is uncharted dark souls and metroid prime specifically metroid prime 3 had a baby all together big four-way and they made this game so it's got a lot of uncharted style sort of platforming and climbing and action sequences and things like that but the overall game structure is basically Metroid Prime 3, where you have a series of planets, and each of those planets is sort of like a focused, major Metroidvania-style level. And then when you go into those, it's very Dark Souls-esque in how everything kind of interrelates, and there are shortcuts. But then the combat um, is fairly Dark Souls-esque, and particularly the progression mechanics, where you have basically the Jedi version of bonfires where you go and meditate and that is where you can spend your leveling points. Um, If you die, your leveling points are all like kept, your leveling points, your EXP is all kept by the enemy that killed you. You have to go find them to get it back. So it's got that sort of Dark Souls-y mechanic. Um, And you put all of that together, it does all of it so well. And if you know anything about me, these are three of like my favorite kinds of games you could possibly make. And I have to say one thing that's super refreshing about it is that these are not the kinds of things that Western game developers do a lot. Like the mm-hmm. Dark Souls thing, the Metroid thing, not a lot of Western developers do it. And frankly, not many have tried to do the Uncharted thing. Really like Tomb Raider, but not a ton of other game studios have tried to do this. And I think it, it has some issues. It's not a perfect game. But it excels at all of these, and it is really impressive, and it is just so fun to sit down and play and explore and fight with your lightsaber. Um, it's fantastic. Uh, just to like set the scene, Sean, I'm playing on the second highest difficulty, Jedi Master. What are you playing on? I, I am playing on Jedi Grand Master, which is the hardest So you went all the way up? Yeah. Okay, so that's the highest. Um, and what's the like latest planet you've been to? I don't think this is a spoiler. Um, just... I have gone all the way through... So th- some of the planets... You visit multiple times. So I've been right. through Kashyyyk all the way once, and I'm on the planet okay. you go back to after that. Okay, I'm in the exact same place. So you and I have both been through Kashyyyk, so we've played a good chunk of the game. So that's kind of my setup on what this game is. What do you want to add to that, Sean? Um, I would say the the combat. because So when you, you say it's like Dark Souls-esque, that's a lot of like the, the level design structure, the shortcuts... 
um, and the meditation point slash bonfire. Um, you also have like Estus Flask equivalents. So your Droid BD one has healing stims that he gives yes. you. That you have like a set number that you can unlock and get new ones um, as you explore the environment and get a different stuff. Um, but it's basically you know you start out with two. Um, and every time you go to a meditation point and you meditate, you recharge all of your healing items, but then all the enemies respawn. So it's the SS Flask equivalent as well. Um, but the combat stuff is more... Not more like it's a lot like Sekiro, at least in terms. It's of a concept. lot like Sekiro yeah. in a way, which is really surprising because that game came out in March. So, like, I don't know, how, like, how these two games are so similar. I don't know if like they revamped elements of Fallen Order if when they saw pieces of Sekiro at some point, um, because they're very similar. Um, you have you have a stamina bar at the bottom of your screen. You also have a force bar for your force powers. Um, you generate by defeating enemies. Um, but your stamina bar d- decreases only when you block things. It's not a like Dark Souls stamina bar that decreases when you swing your lightsaber. Um, so if you block too many hits um, without recharging your stamina bar, you will be put in a stun state and you can get hurt. Human enemies have the same thing. So human enemies also have stun bars. And by parrying, on, which is by default on L1, um, the exact same button as it is on Sekido, uh, You, if you parry the enemy attacks effectively, you will... Uh, hurt their stamina bar and you can either kind of put enemies into stun states and stamina bars and get pretty easy kills on them there's not exactly the death blow equivalent to Sekido, but there's something pretty close um it's not as effective as a death blow but it is you can do you have like special execution moves you can do if they're weak enough and you broke their stamina bar um and yeah so it's got that whole stamina kind of Sekido parry concept it's definitely nowhere near as precise as Sekido. so if like you're coming out of Sekido and you want something that is of that caliber it is not of that caliber um one thing that is interesting that they do um that i wish every video game did this is the difficulty modes tell you what they do um so the difficulty modes do not change the amount of damage you deal so it's never anything about like putting it on hard makes the enemies more damage spongy um they a three hit combo that kills an enemy on the easiest difficulty will kill an enemy on the hardest difficulty what the the difficulty changes is the parry window so if you're on grand master the parry window is much tighter um if you're on the easiest difficulty the parry window is incredibly broad um it changes uh how much uh like aggression the enemies have so how frequently the enemies will attack you changes based on um the difficulty and then how much damage you receive also changes so on my difficulty um enemies can kill me very very easily um some enemies can right now i'm leveled up enough that i'm not usually running into people who can one shot me but early on the game you could get one shotted pretty easily very tight parry windows um i don't know if the game is necessarily fully designed to be this hard because it does it is about sekiro difficulty but without the precision of sekiro um, and I considered bumping it down at one point, but I got leveled up enough that now I'm happy with where my difficulty is at. So I, I would say if you're someone that enjoys really hard games and, um, wants to maybe start at the difficulty, Jonathan, you're on. And then after you get a couple of health upgrades, bump it up to Grandmaster so you're not getting one-shotted. Um, but I am at a place where I'm very much enjoying the combo or the, the combat in the game. Um, while it is very Sekido influenced, it like has like a lot of those concepts. It it is more actiony than Sekido. It's more um, you know you have multiple different combos. You have your skill tree will unlock moves that you can use like special force uh, kind of lightsaber attacks that allow you to dash around really fast. 
Um, it does the kind of Devil May Cry-ish thing where if you press, you can lock a combo where you press R1, or I press R1, I rebinded the attacks immediately to have attack be on R1 and heavy attack on R2 because that's how my brain works. Um, you can rebind all the controls, which is great. But if you do a light attack and then pause and do another light attack, you will do a different type of hit. So it's got a little bit more of that kind of character action stuff in there. It's not a lot, but it's definitely more character action-y than a From Software game or Sekido is. Yeah, and I'll just say for my difficulty level, I'm on Jedi Master, <clears throat> which is the second highest. And it's a proper challenge. Like, if you want a really... Like, that was honestly the biggest surprise for me, Sean, is that... You know, a lot of games will tell you, we took inspiration from Dark Souls or Sekiro or something like that, and they usually don't mean it, right? Mm -hmm. Because those are really... Or Metroid. These are really tough games to actually take influence from. You know, it's really nice that Jedi Fallen Order has an easy difficulty if that's not the kind of game you want. But if you want to be challenged, this is a properly challenging big AAA Western release. And we don't get a lot of those, I don't think, in this kind of mode. And you can make it really hard. And, and Jedi Masters definitely, it is, it'll push you. This is kind of like in a Sekiro or FromSoft vein, minor enemies on the map can kill you very quickly if you fuck up. Yeah. And I think that's really a good way to do it. Yeah, and I've been curious to bump it up to Grandmaster. The only thing that has kept me back from that, Sean, is that I am bad at parry mechanics to begin with. I'm getting better at it here. I don't think the parry windows are super precise in this game, and I'm a little worried about being too challenged by that on Grandmaster, but it is plenty challenging on, on Jedi Master difficulty and definitely is a good, fun uh, challenge that will, you know, kind of put you on your feet, uh, put you on your toes, which is good. It's, it is not a Star Wars, like, power fantasy game in that sense, you know? Like, you yeah. are not crazy overpowered at any point. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really cool, and I think, yeah, the combat is... Probably the thing I was most surprised by just in terms of how good it is, like that and then just the intricacy of the level design. But, you know, I it would be so easy to fuck something like this up, but the combat is incredibly engaging. And I think they find lots of cool ways to keep it fresh and kind of give you different kind of uh, enemy types and different sort of enemy arrangements. And there's just so many cool things you can do. It will never get old firing blaster bolts back at stormtroopers to kill them mm -hmm. by pairing your lightsaber that is one of the coolest things you can do in a video game yes and that's what and I, I imagine that is probably where like the parry mechanic was born was was the, it's a question that star wars games always that do jedi stuff always have to ask is like how do you deal deal with like the blaster reflection mechanics um, and this is the right way that it's like if you just hold down block, he will just block every blaster bolt that comes at him, um, but it'll drain your stamina bar. If you time the block appropriately, you will just like zap that thing right back to that stormtrooper and you will fuck that dude's day up. Um, and it's good. It feels incredibly satisfying. Um, and there's a really good variety of enemy types because you have... Um, there's a bunch of different kinds of stormtroopers, you know, they have to do the thing that these games need to do of where it's like, here's the stormtrooper with the stun baton that can block lightsabers somehow, um, which is fine, you know, they put that in fucking episode 7 anyway, so sure, it's some kind of weird canon now that you just have cool stormtroopers with big shocky thingies that can block lightsabers, I guess, um... But so you have so you have like a wide variety of different human type style enemies that you can fight. Um, but then there's also bunches of like weird alien creatures on the planets you go to. Um, and it is very satisfying kind of learning the intricacies of, you know, the smaller enemies usually have very like 
standard attack patterns that like okay this is like the bug thing that will do like one big hit and then it'll be a, there'll be a little pause where you think you can attack but then it's going to do two smaller hits in that pause so you want to block all three of them kind of thing um which you really have to pay attention to on Jedi grandmaster you will die almost immediately um and then like much more complicated larger enemies uh that have more kind of elaborate strategies sometimes you have to employ um, and one thing I really like is you have a whole like kind of codex thing that is both you collecting information from the environment um, where your character has uh, psychometry, I think is what it's called. It's something that a character named Kinlan Voss in the Star Wars, old Star Wars lore had. This is kind of cool that they brought back where if he touches something, he can kind of get an impression of what it, like it's like owner was or something like that through the force so you can kind of understand the history of a place by touching it so they do a lot of world building collectibles you can get that way but also when you defeat enemies your droid can scan them and if you are not reading um the little like blurbs on those you really should if you're playing on the harder difficulties because they give you extra little hints of like oh this is a good way to deal with this kind of enemy maybe if like a big force were to hit this enemy then it would be in a stun state like it's that kind of stuff where it's like okay you want me to use force push on this guy cool like that's the it's and you have to always defeat the enemy one time before you get that information so if you fight something the hard way it'll kind of let you know okay this is maybe an easier way to deal with this enemy and now that i'm returning to areas i've been to and going to different places i'm encountering enemy types i hadn't fought in a couple of hours and it was a cool moment of me like, oh, like, what, how the fuck do I fight these guys again? Oh, yeah. I dumped into my pause menu, went to my codex, read the thing again. It's like, oh, right. This is the enemy that I want to, like, dodge around in this way. Um, and there's a cool amount of, like, preparation that almost feels, like, Witcher-esque in terms of the monster enemies of, like, how do I deal with this? Oh, right. Okay. This is kind of the strategy I want to use for this big, like, lumbering creature. Yes, I love the codex stuff. I've been reading all of it because it's taken right out of Metroid Prime with the scanning mechanic where you just scan all the flora and fauna and you get, it's not as comprehensive as that in Metroid prime. You could just scan everything Mm -hmm. at will. Um, this is a little more scripted, but it's the same kind of depth of like, there's a story behind everything. They've written all these great entries. You, a lot of the story is told through the scanning and through the psychokinesis or whatever it's called. Um, and I really like how that's all done. Um, absolutely. But for me, Sean, like the star of this game is just the overall, layout and the exploration and how much this game is it really is like a metroid prime or dark souls where it's 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 more story driven but it's really let set you free go explore these really intricate beautifully designed levels they're all really unique and they all kind of loop back on themselves in really fun you know like compelling ways and you're going to discover all these secrets, and you're, it's so cool. And I, and I love how much space it gives you to do that. Because again, I don't think Western, particularly American-developed games, almost ever do anything like this. And it feels like, especially for a game published by E-fucking-A, a really bold way to make a game. And I'm in love with that element of it. And you know, my next thing is, after Kishik, or Kashik, I'm going to go backtrack to some other planets and see some new stuff and i'm so excited this is like my greatest dopamine hit in games i love this yeah because it's 100 percent the like oh uh, you went to this temple and you relearned how to do force push because the whole premise is you were uh, padawan you were very young when order 66 happened so you have forgotten most of your training 
um, in the interim. So you have fun flashbacks where you kind of relearn some of your old Jedi powers. And it's like, oh, I can use Force Push. That means I can go back to this place on that planet and Force Push it open this door and get like a little um, like health upgrade or something like that. Um, so it does that full thing. Um, I think the one I thought was funny is, is the first ability like that you get is wall running, which is a funny thing to forget how to do. It's like, it's, it's not like, Oh, let me use my Jedi mind powers. I haven't used this. Like, Oh, it's just, you're just, you, you do a lot of crazy acrobatic shit at the very beginning of this game. They clearly has not forgotten how to do, but for whatever reason, the wall running is the one thing he's like, how did it, how, what did my master say about how you run on walls again? Oh yes. You put your feet on the wall and you run real fast. I was disappointed that the wall running flashback wasn't just his master like was playing Titanfall with him on Xbox because it's just taken from Titanfall. Yes. It's like it's identical and even like the surfaces you run on are just like they're assets from it's it's there's no problem with it. I think it's really a good inclusion, but it is hilarious how it's the most like we already had this and it worked, so let's just put it in our Star Wars game. Why not? Yeah. Because I do really enjoy the um I enjoy all the traversal stuff. It's fun, yes. like especially it's like there's some areas where they combine a lot of like, oh, you're like sliding down this thing and you jump off, do a wall run, jump off, grab onto a vine, like flip up into the air, do another wall run, like jump through this like air vent or whatever that shoots you across the map. Um, some of the more elaborate acrobatic sequences I've enjoyed um, quite a bit. And I know that there you get some other traversal powers at some point in the game um, that I'm excited to get my hands on because it is... It's it's a really cool cocktail of a lot of different things because it is that you have the full Metroid Prime style um, elaborate environments with different kind of areas you can go through um, that you can unlock things based on the powers you have. Um, but it does have the more like kind of spectacle acrobatic kind of sequences of Uncharted. Um, some of the, the I haven't like outside of the beginning and a couple of other little things. I haven't seen a huge amount of like big cinematic stuff, but the stuff that has been there has been a lot of fun and very cool. Um, and it is like, it is that kind of game where it's not necessarily doing any one thing super uniquely, um, but the specific cocktail they put together of all these different influences, um, with like the Star Wars seasoning on top of it comes out as something that feels pretty, pretty special and is, um, the most addicting game I've played in a while. It's, it's kind of like Sekiro in the sense of like, I just cannot stop playing this game. I played it kind of nonstop every hour I could since I got it on Friday, um and it's fucking just it's so much fun because every time you turn a corner and it's that kind of thing it's like oh i should probably go to bed and then you see a thing it's like well i could probably go get that thing i'll just go get that thing and then i'll go to bed and then you play for like two hours longer than you intend to oh man sean i had that the other night uh friday night i was playing on the zepho planet and i played until three in the morning and i literally my controller fell out of my hands from fatigue and that's how i knew i had to stop because i was just trying to get back to the sh like i had finished what you had to do on zepho the game was telling me leave the planet and move on but i was still running around in it because it's very metroid-esque in that you like there are there's places you're supposed to go but so much of it you can go around and like get a health pickup early or get a customization early like like even if I can't go through that door right next to that door is a box and like you can just run around and see all these things and so I was just taking so long to get back to my ship and I kept kind of and then I would hit a really hard part that I clearly wasn't supposed to see yet and I would die and then I would try it again and finally just fatigue was like okay okay body I'm going to bed I'm sorry I've played too much Star Wars tonight because I do think it is 
it's you're right it does not do any one of these things like the best like i think as we would say like the combat is not as precise as sekiro the i think all of the like climbing platforming stuff from uncharted is not as tight as naughty dog would do it like there's definitely moments where it's a little unintuitive or like oh that jump like is really easy to miss and it shouldn't be easy to miss like in a naughty dog game that would be kind of you wouldn't have to think about it and it's a little more like this feels clunky but you get all of the same kinds of dopamine hits that those mm-hmm. things in those games get you, but you get them in this, as you say, cocktail where they're all together. And I've never played a game where the Uncharted dopamine hit comes in contact with the Metroid Prime dopamine hit, let alone a Dark Souls Sekiro kind of FromSoft hit. And all of those in contact together is just absolutely addicting and, and so fun to play. And then you layer Star Wars on top of all of it and like... I have to tell you, Sean, when I, I did not know this going into the game, when I learned you could change the color of your lightsaber, mm-hmm. I was like on cloud nine because I'm like, you mean I get to see a Star Wars thing without a blue lightsaber if I want? In 2019? I didn't think we would ever see that. I didn't think a hero in Star Wars would ever use anything but a blue lightsaber, but I can make mine green, I can make it orange, I can make it double-ended, the lightsaber customization is really cool. They should just release an iPhone app that's mm-hmm. doing the lightsaber customization because you can make some badass fucking lightsabers in this game. And and so they've got the Star Wars side of it just down fucking pat. The sound team on this game, it's one of the best John Williams facsimiles I've ever heard. It's so good at like the music side of it. All the sound effects are perfect. It's got a really nice Star Wars-y tone. One of the nicest little touches is when you touch down on a planet, they do the Kurosawa wipe to bring your ship yep. there. There's just so many things. And so you bring all these this cocktail together. It's super well made. I think it's clearly lacking a coat of technical polish because it's got some hiccups here and there. Yeah. But it's really fucking good. Yeah, it definitely has some technical jank to it. Um, have you done any of the stuff on Dathomir yet? Yes. Yes. So there, there is a bonfire on Dathomir where if you... I don't know if this is how it works for you, but in my game, if I respawn at this one Dath, uh, bonfire or meditation point whatever and i just sprint i can sprint through like what is basically would be two different encounters with enemies before those enemies can even spawn in um which... yes i've actually seen it at multiple bonfires on dathomir it does okay that. yeah so yeah i i'd only ever notice it at least with with this one one um which also for people who are just playing the game dathomir is a hard planet but if you go to dathomir you can get some good shit early in the game that is very cool um yes. and and yeah like it is so there's like some technical jank i haven't had anything that's like huge i've heard people have like more kind of horror stories with like crashes and stuff i haven't run into anything that bad um i, I had one thing where on dathomir it's all been on dathomir's well cat kishik had some problems but on dathomir i was building a lightsaber part i went out i accidentally hit r3 again he went back in but it was just showing the lightsaber table, but um, the character, Cal, was, like, moving away. And I could move the camera all first person, but I couldn't, get, I couldn't, like, it was stuck in between your playing and you're on the lightsaber table. And I had to reboot the game. That was the biggest one I've had. Although on Kashyyyk, it, it frequently juddered a lot on loading in assets where the game would just freeze for like five seconds that happened all the time on that planet to me yeah what are you playing it on a base ps4 i'm playing it on a ps4 pro and i'm playing it in performance mode which is where they because i don't have a 4k tv so i don't care about above 1080p resolution so it unlocks the frame rate so i would maybe recommend putting it back onto 
quality mode, whatever the fuck they call it, the okay. resolution mode. So by default, if you're playing it on a Pro or Xbox One X, by default it is on a mode that prioritizes resolution over frame rate. But what that actually means is that it locks the frame rate at 30 frames, um, which I watched the Digital Foundry video earlier today, and it is like it is a locked 30 um, almost throughout the whole thing. It very rarely drops. Um, and if you're, it's not a true 4K on the X or the Pro, but it is higher than 1080p if you have a display that can take advantage of it. If you're on the performance mode, it's a 1080p resolution, but it is an unlocked frame rate, but it is definitely not a 60. So like the, the performance mode has a, a wildly variable frame rate that to me makes the game almost unplayable. I know I'm more um, susceptible to that stuff than you are, Jonathan, but I would recommend at least putting it onto the quality mode and playing it a little bit that way because some of the judder you're experiencing is probably the frame rate going from like 50 frames a second to like 20 frames a second when it's trying to stream in assets and it's just like all over the place. If you're just playing on the quality mode or whatever they call it, it is a locked 30 all the way through and I think it is a much better experience that way. I think I was kind of tricked by it a little bit at the beginning because I started doing that on on the planet with the like where you meet uh bb1 yes and that one is probably the technically most sound mm-hmm. and i thought it was like the god of war performance mode which is not a solid 60 but it's a really good performance mode um this seems like yeah it's a lot messier so i will i i watched that video over lunch today and i haven't gone back to the the game yet so i will probably try it on quality mode yeah yeah so that would be my recommendation to people i mean if you haven't touched that setting it defaults to quality mode automatically but yeah, what it feels like, and this is kind of what they say in that, that Digital Foundry video, is it feels like that exists basically with the understanding that the next-gen consoles are going to have backwards compatibility. So if you put a mode into the game that has an unlocked frame rate, it means the game will like basically be able to automatically take advantage of that additional power. Um, and that's kind of what it feels like they've yeah. done. Um, but yeah, like the game has weird like street asset streaming problems. Um, that seems like weirdly variable from like per like console to console. Um, like some people have more issues with it because it depends on like hard drive stuff. Um, it does feel like it is like an advocation for the we need to move to SSDs because this is sometimes yes. particularly on Kashyyyk, there are just areas where the game has problems streaming in assets and you will hit it's almost like playing the original Half Life, where it's like you're it's a seamless level, but you'll just hit a point where it's like, oh, we need to put a little loading like progress thing in the corner and we need to just stop the game for about three seconds to allow shit to load in while you're like looking at it um it's an unreal engine game so luckily ea did not shackle them the frostbite that also means that it has lots of um asset pop in like texture detail pop in um my favorite is there's an area on dathomir where bd1 it's like a cutscene that triggers a bd1 goes to scan some sort of like stone plaque but the cutscene cut like the camera cut to the plaque the assets have not totally streamed in yet, so it's just like this totally like blank, muddy-looking thing of rock that like slowly the runes on it load in because it's like the top-level um, texture detail. Um, so there's like little like janky things like that. I haven't had a huge amount of trouble with it, but it's something to be aware of um, playing the game. But that shit aside, um, it's fantastic, and it like. This is the most fun I've had with Star Wars in a long time. Like, it's just, you know, I feel like... And we'll we'll talk about The Mandalorian, which I've also enjoyed, particularly Episode 2. But it's like... The the recent just feel on Star Wars for me has been so negative for a while. Especially since Rebels has been done for for a couple of years. 
um, that it's just like I just have not had a lot of fun Star Wars stuff. And this is just so fucking fun. The lightsaber sound effect is fucking great. Uh, it's crazy that it's just been so long since I played a game where I can use a lightsaber. That it that that like using a lightsaber in a video game should not feel fresh to me, and it feels so fresh because it's been ten fucking years since Force Unleashed Two. Um, and especially, I really love how much this game feels like without them being like like direct like character things but just the general world feel it feels really tied into clone wars and rebels the two animated series since it's set um a little bit before when rebels takes place and you know five years after clone wars basically clone wars almost goes up to order 66 it's it's in this sweet spot where you get like good like here's the holocron that obi-wan sends out in episode three that all the um, Jedi have that warns them about Order 66 and you see that holocron and it's the dude who plays Obi-Wan in Clone Wars um, and there's a whole thing in Rebels dealing with that holocron also that's like ties in really well. Um, your Jedi Master that your character had um, that presumably died during, during Order 66 I actually the game has not specifically said that but that's probably what has happened to him um, he is a Lasat which is the alien race that one of the main characters in Star Wars Rebels is. That's like based on the early Ralph McQuarrie design drawings of what a Wookiee would look like. Um, and so that's cool. It's like, oh, here's the Lasat, like, which is a race from Star Wars Rebels. Um, all the Kashyyyk stuff. There's Kashyyyk stuff from Star Wars Rebels. Saw Gerrera is in the game. Um, who He's a character originally from Clone Wars that's also in Rogue One. The Forrest Whitaker character that's also in an episode of Star Wars Rebels. So that feels like it's tied in that way. There's just a lot of little tiny things like that that I feel like it's way closer to those series than it is to any of the individual movies or anything like that. Even just being able to go to Dathomir, which is a planet heavily featured in the last couple of seasons of Clone Wars, which is some of my favorite stuff in that show, and like finding out stuff about what happened to the Night Sisters of Dathomir and all that. It is a really cool um, Star Wars fan thing, or like Star Wars, like the thing for Star Wars fans made as a video game in an era of Star Wars where no other video games are here. And so some of like the best Star Wars media of the past few years has been these TV shows. And there just have been no good Star Wars games since those TV shows came out and were good. And so it's like the first time I've been able to play a Star Wars game that is influenced by what is my favorite Star Wars media of the past 10 years, which is Clone Wars and Rebels. And, and that is a really cool feeling. So if you're someone who, who has seen those shows and enjoys them, this is a Star Wars game that feels like the people who made this game watched those shows and liked those shows and brought like little world elements from those shows directly into this game. Yeah, and I think it's really cool that that's all there. And I also just want to say to anyone who's sort of on my side of the table where you've seen all the movies but don't watch all the shows and do the EU stuff, it's 100% accessible. Oh, yeah. There's nothing in here that's like, you have to, it's like... I did not know until I looked it up that Dathomir is Darth Maul's planet and all that stuff. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. I love that that's tied in. But also for me as a player, Dathomir is just this... Because, like, Cal doesn't know that. Yeah. And it's really just cool to, like, go to Dathomir and be like, this is a cool, creepy planet with some fucked up shit going on. So it kind of hits... I think whatever kind of Star Wars fan you are, this'll, this'll like, hit your Star Wars uh, erogenous zone. Yes. That joke came out wrong. It that I, I stumbled over every word of it. Yeah. It also does a much better job than most Star Wars stuff does of the, like, interim period between Episode 3 and 4, um, which is such a busy area for Star Wars and has been for a while. Um, and I feel like a lot of stuff doesn't do it very well. And I like here, it feels like 
the game is very focused on really looking at like what are the consequences of this switch over to the empire um i mean just like the opening level of the game which takes place in a shipyard where the empire is dismantling all the old republic starfighters and taking those pieces and turning them into star destroyers um like that is a amazing fucking like visual um it's an awesome opening but then it also just sort of like sets up stuff for like the feeling of the tone of the game in the state of the world which is much more raw than like where you are in episode four or even in some ways star wars rebels which is a little bit further into it um where here like the empire feels more fresh um and just like you know stumbling upon like you know a pile of battle droids just like of destroyed battle droids like carcasses or whatever piled up on that junker planet or sometimes running into like the remains of an ancient clone war battle which you see some like little bits of pieces of that um like seeing a hologram that has a clone in it that is voiced by the dude who voices the clones in the clone wars like all that it feels really tied into that era of star wars in a way that feels very smart and not just this is a spot where we can set a game where we can have TIE fighters in stormtroopers. So let's put it there. It feels like it's more motivated than that, which is like kind of how I felt looking at the early trailers of the game. My fears of like how it would deal with the setting. It feels like it's, it's much more concerned with dealing with like the reality of the world, um, which it also kind of feels like an influence from those shows, which are very much about the world building and the setting and the role that that plays on the characters. Um, and this kind of takes that storytelling idea um, into the game and fully into the game because so much of it is also about you exploring these spaces and picking up collectibles and getting little pieces of backstory that tie into all that stuff as well. Yeah, because, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, Sean. I don't find the core like story and characters particularly compelling, but I don't care. That's not the kind of, this is not the kind of game that needs that. What it excels at is what it needs to excel at, which is the sense of world building and a and a world to go discover that is is really compelling to see and and find and and I think it's exactly what you say I think it has a really interesting vantage on that middle period that I haven't quite seen before and it is really cool from the beginning to where I am now like I think you know I just did the stuff on Kashik and like seeing how Saw Gerrera is used and even though I don't have a pre-existing relationship with that character really like it does feel like okay this is a really compelling version of a, of a world that has not... It's not the settled version of the world that Luke comes into. This is like, everyone's coming in hot. People are really mad about the Empire. It does all that really well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm kind of with you, like... It kind of feels like the A plot of the game hasn't really started yet. I've heard some things that make it sound like the story gets more interesting in kind of the second half of the game after you do the, like... It's got this very, like... Honestly, it reminds me most of Knights of the Old Republic because it has a similar thing of like, oh, you you have to go to these like three places or whatever and get like the thingy that will give you access to this other thing. And in Knights of the Old Republic, it was like coordinates to some sort of like hidden location and your star maps you have to go to on all these different planets. And it kind of feels like that. And I suspect that once you get through like that first like kind of opening section of the story that it's going to get into some more interesting stuff. Um, because especially like there's a, like some weird shit that you see on Dathomir, like a weird dude you meet on Dathomir that I really want to know what that guy's deal is, who the fuck that dude is. Um, and He's I, basically a Star Wars Dark Souls NPC. Yeah, I it's it's really weird. And there's like, I feel like I, I there's like something in the back of my mind where it's like, I, have I seen this character in something else and I just don't know it yet because he's older looking or something? I don't know. Um, but there's something weird about that dude that I'm very intrigued by. Um, and I also really 
I'm excited to see the Sith Inquisitors again because that's something else they pull from Star Wars Rebels where you have um, these Dark Force users um, that go around that are very cool called Sith Inquisitors that are like the Emperor's sort of like elite Jedi hunting task force. Um, And you have a run-in with them at the very beginning of the game and I haven't seen them again yet. Um, But the main one, the second sister, is a really good design. Um, She's the coolest Sith Inquisitor they've had since the first one because there are a couple in Rebels that don't really work for me but she feels like there's some legitimate menace coming off of that character that I really want to see her again. Um, so, like, I, I think right now the story is in this kind of cool phase where it's just explore the world, like, get the sense of where things are at. Um, but I think some of the stuff with, like, your weird Jedi mentor lady, Sarah, that you've met, like, she's cool or care, whatever you pronounce her name. Um, I think there, there's some cool blocks they put in place that I hope they pull through for like some cooler story stuff. But I'm also with you that if that never amounts to much more than here's a kind of an okay Star Wars story in a really good Star Wars setting, that is good enough for me for what I want from this game. Yeah, and if the story picks up later, that's great. But I do think for what I've played so far, I think any more narrativization would be a, a drag on this game. This mm-hmm. kind of gameplay is not conducive to a heavy amount of story. And so I think they've calibrated it just right. And if after you've explored a bunch of stuff, they want to kick in the narrative, that's the time to do it. So I'm curious to get there. Yeah. Um, what do you think about Cal Kestis? I think he has the most punchable face of any Star Wars protagonist. Yeah. And I think... Cameron Monaghan's kind of a weird-looking dude to begin with, but you put him into uncanny CGI, and it's just... It's a little off-putting, and I, I don't I don't dislike the character or anything. I like his voice, but, boy, he's got a punchable yeah. face. And I, I, I wonder... This is where, like, I'm kind of curious where the story goes. Is I'm wondering how much of that is intentional, because I get the same vibe from him, but it's also, like... I don't know how old Dominic Monaghan actually is, but the character feels like he's like 16 years old, which would be appropriate. Yeah. Like he would, he was a young Padawan during the war. So he's like a kid in a weird way. And he feels very youthful. Um, yeah. And especially like all of his stuff with BB one. Yeah. All the stuff with BB one, which also BB one is, I think one of the best droids Star Wars has had. There's something like, like I usually don't, I'm not like a big droid character guy. I know that there's some people are like really into the, the droids and they like, BB-8, is that the one from... Yeah, BB-8's yeah, great. Yeah, BB-8, the new movie. It's like, BB-8's fine. Um, I like HK-47 from KOTOR because he's an actual character who has, like, dialogue and stuff. Um, but I'm, like, usually not super into the cutesy droids. There's something about how, like, tight Cal and BD-1's relationship is in this that, like, feels, like, more authentic to me than just, like, the, hey, your fun droid BB-8 stuff from the new movies is fine, but it just feels, like, a little bit, like we're trying to sell a toy to me. Um, whereas this feels like, no, this is like they're buddies. Like they're legitimate buddies that like get a chat with each other. I think it's like the space that the game has to be able to just like have fun little moments between the two of them works really well. Um, but yeah, so I really like his relationship with BD one and it makes him feel like it's like a kid playing with like their puppy or something. Um, and then also his relationship with saw on Kashyyyk also makes him feel very young. How immediately he kind of buys into all the stuff that Saw Gerrera does. Like it's, I, I, I hope that they're setting up stuff for that character because I think there's material they've set up with like how kind of naive and a little like punchable he feels to use your, your words um, that they could do cool stuff with it if they choose to do so. And I hope they do. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious how much he gets characterized later on because my reaction so far 
is that I don't know why Cal Kestis couldn't be like a pick a male or female version of this character uh-huh. and just swap them out and like do two. I know it would cost more, but like it's all in engine stuff. It wouldn't be impossible to do because there's nothing like so specific about the character. He had to be this. Um, so I'm curious if more comes of it. I, you know, he's, he's not like, you know, overall, this is obviously much more interesting than like the force awakens, but he's no Ray. He doesn't have like the presence of a Daisy Ridley or something or like a really compelling star Wars protagonist. So I'm curious where it goes. I just looked it up. Um, he, the actor is 26, so he is young and he's, he's done like, you know, uh, he's played kids for a long time and he was a child actor. So it kind of makes sense, you know, that age range to cast, but yeah. It's it's interesting, and I do I think when his youthfulness comes out is what I like most. Like when he's just going around and BB One's his buddy, and all of his dialogue with BB One is the most charming. I find that character, and BB One is a is a great little droid. Yes, uh, like you you get a like here here's something that I know some people don't like about it, but I actually kind of love is the like so so you don't have this is not a loot game. You don't, it's not, you're not getting lightsaber parts that have like plus five to health or anything like that. There's also no stats. So when you say like Dark Souls, we're not saying like it has an RPG mechanic to it. All the XP just goes into skill points on a skill tree, um, which is, that is also more like Sekido and that like you kind of stock up a skill point. Once you have a skill point, you don't lose it. Um, it's only the XP you have to your next skill point that you can lose. Um, but so like a lot of the stuff you find in the environment is like occasionally you'll find like oh here's like a health upgrade here's a new like stim pack thing um but the majority of it is here's like a different poncho for my dude to wear that just looks different here's a different color scheme for the ship here's a different color scheme for bd1 and then there are what like not including colors i think there are four different pieces of the lightsaber that you can customize um and i know that there are some people that like wish that there was more like kind of like more like quote-unquote like valuable doodads more things that like contributed directly to the gameplay i really like that this game is not trying to as someone who just played the outer world which has too much bullshit loot in it that means nothing i'm really like to have a game that's like i'm happy to get like here's a little like you know cool sleeve on my lightsaber that i can put on if i want because i actually honestly care more about my lightsaber looking cool than i do about like doing two two percent more damage or something like that you know i like the focus the game has on cosmetics even if i wish that like the cosmetics for Cal himself were a little bit more dramatic than just like palette swaps. Um, I really, I think I prefer having like, let, give me a new cool like coat of paint for BD1 rather than like a helmet or something for my dude. Yeah, I I think I come some somewhere down in the middle. I agree. I I'm I think it, they're 100% correct not to have like stat boost loot stuff like that would be totally wrong for this game they they made the right approach with the Sekiro style skill tree and then everything else is purely cosmetic that's what this had to be but I do think that just because it's got that Metroid-y style exploration I think too many of the rewards for that exploration are very simple cosmetics the majority of which you probably will never use Mm. and too many of them are too bland like one thing I thought immediately is that the skill tree has health. Um, <clears throat> sorry, the skill tree has health and force power ups, and I think those should be entirely taken out of the skill tree and put into the world. And there should be more of finding 
basically this version's game of heart pieces or energy tanks from Metroid and Zelda, like that to me would be much more rewarding where it's not changing your, it's not like a plus two, but it's just finding things to like get your health and force up. Those being some more explorable things and then maybe cutting down on the level of cosmetics. That's what I was thinking. I, but it doesn't bother me that much. I enjoy finding the cosmetics, especially the lightsaber yes. ones. The lightsaber ones, they're really good. They're, you can make some cool ass looking lightsabers. Uh, I do think the, sheer tonnage of cal ponchos that look the same is a little ridiculous uh but i do like having some of the different skins for bb1 because there's some really cool ones there yeah. i have him with the yavin red and that one looks really cool i do the thing i like about the ponchos is like theming them to wherever i'm going and like making the character look different again i wish that there were like it's like i wish you could get different looking outfits um and maybe different palettes of those but like you, you there's only the one look and you can choose to have a poncho or not have a poncho um but other than that it's only the color schemes but but the star of the show is the lightsaber like this is a lightsaber fetish game in many ways um which is good because we have never had that video game as shocking as it is like the closest you get is jedi academy which allows you to select from like eight or so lightsaber presets there's no game in which you customize your lightsaber, and it's I, I've never understood how that has never been a thing. Part of the reason why it's never been a thing is that it's been fucking ten years since we had a good Star Wars game. So it's been a long yes. time since we've been able to try it. Like Force Unleashed has a bunch of different lightsaber colors, and lightsaber colors is common. But in terms of building a cool-looking lightsaber hilt, it's never really been a thing in games before. So just being able to like make my own custom-looking lightsaber is such a huge thing to me is like something i've been wanting from a star wars game for years and just have never gotten what color are you rocking right now so so this is gonna be here's my feelings on it cal kestis is a green lightsaber character through and through yes the way that character is designed is a green lightsaber i am using a blue lightsaber because his lightsaber is his master's lightsaber and i suspect at some point in the game you're going to get a different lightsaber by suspect I kind of know that at some point in the game, there's going to be some kind of Cal needs to do something to make a lightsaber thing. Some kind of thing. Okay. I have not been role-playing that hard. I switched to green as soon as I could because I'm sick and goddamn tired of looking at blue lightsabers. Green is awesome. And then I forgot to redeem my pre-order bonus until today, and I realized you could have an orange one, yes. and so I'm playing with my orange lightsaber at the moment. But I see where you're coming from, Sean. Yes, I maybe like try to, as spoiler-free as possible, Google whether or not there would be a moment in the game where Cal would do something narratively with the lightsaber and... The, I, I, it, I was so cautious about it that I'm still actually not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that some point there's a Cal needs to build a lightsaber kind of thing that happens. The, I, I'm not saying this is like, this cannot be a spoiler for you because I do really don't know if it's fully true, but, but I think it happens. And so I would feel it's wrong. Like, cause for, for me, it will be the satisfaction of when Cal gets his own lightsaber, then it gets to be his color. But right now, it's gotta be. It's gotta be that blue because that's because his master is one hundred percent a blue lightsaber dude. Like you see that guy, yes. that Lasat dude in the the flashbacks. That dude had a blue lightsaber. Absolutely no question. He's a blue lightsaber man. Um, and so Cal's got to use the blue lightsaber before he earns his own color. Well, there you go. Just like Ray will until the final, <laughs> final moments of The Rise of Skywalker when it cuts to credits just as she ignites a lightsaber and we never learn what color it was, is how I'm guessing that ends. Uh, it'd be so funny if she just gets another blue lightsaber. <laughs> it's just like, fucking here we go. Blue lightsabers till the end of time. 
I mean, just completely forgotten Luke had a green one. We've just ignored that. Yeah. It just didn't happen. I mean, fuck that. Like, the movies haven't even caught up to the idea of there being a yellow lightsaber. Like, we're still not even there yet. I don't think, yeah. I don't even think in Attack of the Clones. I think, I think they were going to put a yellow lightsaber in Attack of the Clones in the big Jedi scene, but they didn't because it was on a desert. And so it wouldn't look good on the desert. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm actually open to maybe if, because I know that eventually you get other lightsaber colors like yellow. Maybe Cal becomes a yellow guy. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I used to be very against the yellow lightsaber, but I've kind of grown accustomed. I, I'm kind of a fan of the yellow lightsaber these days. All right. Well, let's go Good ahead and chance. move on, Sean, yeah. to our uh, second to last big topic of the day, <laughs> which is we're going to talk Disney Plus, the new streaming service from our new corporate overlords. And Disney is gross, but this app is actually pretty good. It's uh, that it should be, on Tuesday. We should write an article and have that be the headline. Disney is gross, but this app is actually pretty good. I don't know how else to say it, yeah. Sean, because Disney grosses me out. But I also know I've had a lot of fun with Disney Plus this week. And I think it's unambiguously one of the best streaming apps money can buy, mm-hmm. especially given the price. Like, it has a gargantuan amount of content, including originals including Disney stuff, Pixar stuff, Marvel stuff, old Disney Channel stuff, um, National Geographic stuff. Like, it's a pretty broad base of stuff. On day one, it had a ton of things. Um, I think it is a really well-laid-out app. I've used it on my iPhone, iPad, and my Apple TV, and it's great on all three. I think the streaming video quality is the best I've seen, maybe other than Netflix. And even then, I actually think some of it looks more sturdy to me than Netflix. So, And it's got 4K and HDR stuff, which I do not have a 4K HDR TV, but I've heard that it's very good. Um, it gave us a new cut of A New Hope where Greedo yells McClunky, and that's fantastic. Um, so I, it's a cool app. We'll talk about The Mandalorian in a second, but, I mean, have you been using it? Any thoughts on it? Yeah, so um, I'm using it on, on PlayStation, which is nice because that's where I – that's, like, my main media hub is I just use my PS4. Um, and the reason why I say that is because some streaming services like the Criterion Channel 1 do not have a console app. Like, I can still yeah. watch those because I have – my, you know, I have a smart TV because all TVs are smart TVs these days. Um, so, like, I can use those streaming services, but I prefer it all just to be on the PlayStation. Um, so, the PS4 app, it looks great. I mean, it's the ba- same basic design um, as any of as the app on anywhere else. It's very clean, which I like a lot. There is an th- here's a huge thing. There's a settings menu where you can decide whether or not you wanted to start auto playing things as you hover over them. Netflix. What the fuck? Not just that, like all streaming services. Why do you not have settings menus for preferences? How is this not a thing? How, like, what the fuck has happened that people think that you can't do preferences? Like, uh, there should be a toggle for whether or not I want my fucking shit to minimize the video when it's playing credits on something. Because I don't want it to all the time. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Um, that's one that like Disney Plus doesn't have an option for that. I wish they would have it because it automatically minimizes stuff after a couple of seconds of credits. Sometimes I wanted to leave the credits up if like it's a song like for the Mandalorian. I really like the main theme of the Mandalorian. I like listening through through the credits. I would prefer if they just left the credits up and didn't bump out to the screen. Um, so so you know, it, but it does allow you to toggle off like autoplay videos. Um, and overall, the service it's a, it's a good app, and I think it's interesting. Like, the way it feels to sort of browse compared to a Netflix, um, where I know there are other streaming services that are more specific um, that I haven't used, like a CBS one or something like that. But this being all Disney content, 
it's kind of interesting how it's like it's not a broad like broad variety of things but it's incredibly deep on each of the different like sort of sections you can go into. So it basically is like segmented into Disney stuff, Pixar stuff, Star Wars stuff, and Marvel stuff. And it's pretty... And Nat Geo. And Nat Geo, yeah. I mean, Nat Geo is not like one of the... They don't... It's on the top. I don't, I don't think on the PS4 app it's, it's in the... I feel like they're like the oh, big Oh, it four. is on the other apps. Okay, maybe, on, yeah. maybe, or maybe I'm just sort of like blanking out because I haven't, I haven't looked at any of the nat- okay. National Geographic stuff, I must confess. Um, I didn't know that it would be on there. I was very shocked when I loaded it up the map. Like I saw something with the Nat Geo logo, and I'm like, "What?" Yeah, it's one of their five badges, and um, it's just cool because they've got a lot of cool stuff, like the movie Free Solo and things like that, that are like very acclaimed and cool to have. So I just wanted to shout it out because there are things on here that will actually educate your children yes. if you want to. Yeah, but anyways, in the ma- each of like the major pools of content they have go very very deep, but there's not like. You know, you're not going to see... I mean, there's nothing, like, R-rated or anything like that on, on it, right? Like, there's nothing, like, particularly adult. No, I don't think they go up that high. That kind of stuff would probably go to Hulu. Like, they do have a lot of Fox movies, but it's stuff like The Sound of Music, mm. um, things like that, that would be more family-friendly, yeah. Yeah, so so it's it's got a different vibe than something like a Netflix or Crunchyroll or Hulu or something where it's like, here's just like a bunch of stuff from a bunch of different places that feel very, very different. Whereas like the Disney Plus gives you access to a lot of content, but it feels overall relatively homogenized in terms of what you can actually go see. Um, but yeah, um, you know, I'm not particularly interested in most of like the Disney or Pixar parts of it. Like it's nice to have access to, but obviously I'm more interested in the Star Wars and Marvel stuff. Um, for Marvel, it doesn't have Spectacular Spider-Man, which is a bummer. Like, I know this is, like, some kind of rights thing. It has most... That's owned by Sony, so... Yeah, so there's lots of Marvel cartoons. It has, like... They've made, like, four fucking Spider-Man cartoons since Spectacular Spider-Man that I haven't seen anything of, and they're, like, all on there. So there's a lot of Spider-Man cartoons, but there's not the Spider-Man cartoon that you want to see. Um, X- the X-Men uh, anime series is on there, the old one, um, and that's cool to have. Um, one recommendation I would have for people, because I think most people have I've probably seen it, is Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, which is an animated series from around the time the Spectacular Spider-Man came out. That is on um, Disney+, Plus, and that is a very good cartoon if you want some fun, like Thor, Iron Man, Captain America, and Hulk pounding around and having some fun Avengers times. That is a good cartoon to watch. Um, for Star Wars, a big thing that's missing that I also kind of knew would be missing is the Gindy Tartakovsky Clone Wars is not on there. Um, because I think that's like Cartoon Network produced that series. So th- that's probably why it is not on there. But so you have basically every Star Wars thing except for the Gindy Tartakovsky Clone Wars uh, shorts. But you have like, here's like 70 different Lego Star Wars things that you did, probably didn't know existed. Here's like the Ewok cartoon they made in the 90s. You know, like... Uh, there's a, there's a. They have the making of documentary Empire of Dreams from the 2004 DVD yep. set, which if you've never seen is really good. Yes. George Lucas lies in it a lot, but it's it's really fun. Yeah. It's a good one. That documentary is very good. They don't have the Christmas special either. That's the other thing. This well, which which especially with you're doing your whole Mandalorian thing. I mean, come on, the thing where Boba Fett fucking comes from is the Star Wars Christmas special. Lest we forget that animated uh, delight uh, in in the holiday special. So, so it's not absolutely everything Star Wars like video video content you could possibly put, um, but it's pretty fucking close. It's it's more there's more stuff in there than you would think because you'd think like oh it'd be the movies 
it'll be the Clone Wars and Rebels and Resistance, the new cartoon, which I'll probably watch that after the second season's done because the second season is going to be the last one. Um, and it is like, and then maybe you remember that they did that Ewok one. Um, but it's also like, here's all this Lego Star Wars stuff and like these shorts that are also on their YouTube channel that they made a couple of years ago that do some like side stories with other characters. There's like, there's a good variety of content there. Um, I should also say they don't yet have The Last Jedi or Solo because those are still on Netflix. Right. Those will be coming near the end of December. Same with a couple of Marvel movies. They're going to have every MCU movie other than the Spider-Man ones because obviously those are Sony. Um, but yeah, those are coming. They're just not there yet if you're wondering where like Solo... Who, if there's anyone out there going, where's Solo? I need Solo. Uh, it's like, it will I'm, be coming in December. Yeah, it's like I'm, I watched all of the Darth Maul episodes of Clone Wars. Then I need to watch the five-minute section from Solo Star Wars Story and then watch the Darth Maul episodes from Rebels. Like I want my, the Darth Maul cut of, of uh, the history of Star Wars. Um, because that's that's the only footage of Darth Maul you're missing that exists is is the little bit from the Solo Star Wars story. Um, but anyways, critically, the most crucial thing that is on Disney Plus, the thing that everyone should drop what you're doing and go watch, is motherfucking Gargoyles is on Disney Plus, which of course it is. I hadn't thought about it that it was going to be on Disney Plus until it was there, and. If you have not seen Gargoyles, Gargoyles is so, so fucking good. I've only watched a little bit of it um, because I, I, I've seen most of Gargoyles when I was a kid, but I've never watched it all the way through because it's never been on another streaming service. But I watched the first couple of episodes and it's like, mm-hmm, Gargoyles is very good. If you want some good fucking Jonathan Frakes hamming it up as Xanatos in Gargoyles, there's, there's your one-stop shop is Disney+. Plus. It has all the Xanatos you could possibly ask for. Okay, so hey, future Jonathan here. Uh, this is where our technical problems came in, and we are unfortunately missing the master files for the rest of this episode, which means the Mandalorian review we were just about to transition into at this point is not here. We like it. It's a good show. It's a really fun Star Wars show. Episode 2 is particularly great. It's all very promising. Uh, and we will definitely talk about the show again. We will redo this segment next week as soon as we can. And we will also, at that point, have a third episode to talk about. So hopefully we can go into even more depth with the show and really give it its due. But unfortunately, there's no saving what we recorded here. Uh, but before we go for today's episode, we also did record a segment at the end where I challenged Sean to a sort of weird streaming TV trivia game. And there's really no way for us to re-record that in the future since the element of surprise would be gone and Sean knows all the answers now. I do have the raw version of Sean's audio though since he records that separately out in Colorado while I'm here in Iowa. Uh, and I was mostly reading from a script for this segment to begin with because I had written the game and I was giving him questions. So what I'm going to do here is recreate to the best of my ability what I was saying and then you'll hear Sean responding from the original recording. It might be a little awkward but this was a really fun segment. I didn't want to lose it so I'm going to do the best I can. All right. Here we go with our final segment for today. Let's play a game. So, Sean, 
I have created a game for us to play about the streaming TV phenomenon. We've got Apple TV Plus having launched earlier this month. Disney Plus is launching next week. HBO Max is launching next year. There's so many streaming TV platforms. The, The landscape is more crowded than ever. In fact, there are so many services out there, I am not sure you can distinguish between which ones are real and which ones are fake. So let's play a game about it. It's pretty simple. I've got a series of questions testing whether or not you can discern real streaming services from fake ones I have made up. There are nine multiple choice questions. There's a lightning round at the end. I've got a sample question to kind of set us up at the beginning. The point system I've created, I think it's pretty simple. Every question that's a multiple choice question will have five points. If you get it right, you get five points. If you get it wrong, you get zero points. And then the lightning round will have 18 possible points. So there's a total of 68 possible points. And I'm going to say you need 50 points to win. Can I ask a question? Sure, go ahead. Why did you make this so complicated? Oh. Why, 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 why is there a point system? What's, what's happening? Am I being graded? A little bit. What happens if I fail? Uh, if I fail, do I have to leave the podcast? Maybe. Okay. Hey, Sean, let's go ahead and kick it off with a sample question to sort of show you what we're going for here. Here's my sample question. Which of these two services is a real platform for streaming Japanese anime in North America? Spicy Tuna or Crunchyroll? Crunchyroll. You are correct. Five points. Yay. All right. So now let's go ahead and start the game off proper. First question, Sean. Which of these is an actual streaming service dedicated to delivering British cricket matches? There are four options. Striker HD, Willow TV, Wicket Plus, or Spin Bowl? Which of these is an actual British cricket streaming service? Um, what was the second one? Willow TV. Willow TV is my answer. You are correct. Yes. The other one sounded like things you would make up. That was how I answered that question. All right, question number two. Which of the following spellings of the word jinx is the name of an esports streaming service? Okay. Is it jinx, the normal spelling, J-I-N-X, jinx with a Y as in Pokemon, jinx, G-I-N-X, or jinx, J-I-N-K-S? The G-I-N-X. Was that an option? Yes. I'm going to go with that one. You're correct. Five points. Okay. Doing pretty good so far. I've never heard of... I want to make it clear. I've never heard of whatever the cricket one was or this... I don't know either of these. Who would? They're extremely obscure. But let's go ahead to question number three. Which of these two services is a real streaming platform licensed by American libraries for use by patrons? Is it Canopy? K-A-N-O-P-Y? Or Hoopla? H-O-O-P-L-A? I think I'm pretty sure it's Canopy. Nope. This is actually a trick question. They're both real. Oh, okay. They're both so ridiculous, I had to do it. Because I've definitely used Canopy before, and I was pretty sure it was the library. Okay. Yeah, they're very silly. I saw Hoopla, and I, I had to make a dumb question about it. Hoopla! All right, moving on to question number four. Which of the following is a real streaming service in the UK for streaming domestic TV programming? Four options. One of them's real. Is it Hazel TV, Cobbs HD, Acorn TV, or Chestnut? Acorn. That is correct. I've heard of that one. That's how I answered that. Oh, I had never heard of it before. I, I, I knew that one existed. All right, well, so far so good. Let's move on to question number five. 
Is the Dove Channel the name for a streaming service of Christian programming or a promotional campaign for the popular brand of soap and other hygiene products? Shit. <laughs> um, it's weird how plausible. Yeah. I'm going to go with the hygiene product. I'm going to say it's Dove is a hygiene product. Ooh, incorrect. Damn it. Yep, it's Christian. Damn it. I I I wanted to go with the one that seemed even more outlandish. Man, Dove got fucked, and now they have to just make Dove Max or Dove Plus now to do their streaming service. And every time you buy a new bar of soap, you get another month free. Yep. All right, question number six. Which of the following is a real video service or streaming channel? I'm going to read you a name and a description of that okay. potential service. Is it Pantaflix, P-A-N-T-A, a streaming service for German television? Pandaflix with a D, a streaming service for Chinese television, Pantherflix, a YouTube channel devoted to videos of wild panthers, or Pajamaflix, an ASMR app aimed at relaxation and sleep aid. Which one is real? Fuck, this one's the hardest one to guess so far. Um, Pajamaflix? The real one is Pantaflix over in Germany. That was my second. That was my second guess. Yeah, I heard the word pantaflix, and so then I went panda, pajama, panther, and I made this dumb question. Okay, someone should make. Are you sure? Did you Google if pajama flicks exists? Did you Did you fact check that? I'm going to fact check that. You go on with the next question while I Google. Okay, you Google question number seven. Which of the following is not a real corporate conglomerate's tie-in video service? Five options. One of these is fake. Four of them are real. Is it AT&T okay. TV Now, LG Channel Plus, T-Mobile Screen, Verizon Go 90, or Yahoo View? Which one of those is fake? So I have to get the fake one. Yes. Um, go through, can you go through them again? Yeah, it's AT&T TV Now, LG Channel Plus, T-Mobile Screen, Verizon Go 90, and Yahoo View. The T-Mobile one, T-Mobile Screen? Correct. That's my guess. Oh, phew. Huh. Good I job. have breaking news. Pajama flicks is not a thing. I was I was really hoping that that seemed so plausible that I I wanted to double check. Very plausible, but unfortunately for now, uh, Pajama Flicks is still open for anyone who wants to make it. But let's go ahead to number eight. Which of the following is a real subscription service or app named from modern slang term? Okay. Each of these is a modern slang term plus what it might be. Is it Bay, an American subscription service for indie romance novels? Fetch, an app for Australian live TV? Shway, a European indie comics app? Or Slaps, a Canadian music streaming service? Fetch? You got it. Oh. Yeah, I, I actually tested this game the other night with my brother just to see what it was like. And this one messed him up because he thought I just took Fetch from the movie Mean Girls and that it couldn't possibly be real. But no, apparently Fetch is very popular with our friends down under. There you go. Fetch. All right, Sean, last multiple choice question for today. Number nine, which of the following is not a real live TV replacement service? These are services a la PlayStation View, Hulu Live TV, things like that. I'm going to give you six of these, and one of them is fake. Okay. Is it Fubo TV, F-U-B-O, Fubo, Cloud TV with a K and a W, Cloud, Philo as in philosophy, Pluto.tv, snap.tv 
or Zumo, X-U-M-O. Which of these is the fake one? Pluto. It's fake. No, the fake one is Snap TV. Pluto TV is real. Damn. Snap TV is a better name than all the other ones. And that's why I made the game. They are all very, very silly. Okay, so now, Sean, we are going to be going into the lightning round. Okay. Let's see how many points you have here so far. 5, 10, 15, 20, 25. You have 30 points. I, mean, I already have a passing grade, so I'm good. No, I said earlier you need 50 to win. You only have 30 points so far, so you've actually got to do really well on this lightning round. What? This is a 10-question quiz. Okay, I mean, yes, there's a lightning round, but it's basically one of the... The lightning round should add up to one. It's 10 questions. Each one should be worth 10%. You're fucking a bad teacher. Be that as it may, I made the rules, and so you need... Well, you know what? We'll reduce this. I'll say you need 40 points to win, not 50, because you actually wouldn't have enough. I counted wrong. So there's going to be 18 options on this lightning choice round we're going to go through, and you'll get a point for each of those you get right. But anyway, let's go ahead and start the lightning round. The way this works, Sean, is I am going to give you a series of uh, names of real services, but each of them is either a streaming video service or a porn site, and you have to pick which one is which. Okay, so I'm say- so you're giving me one, and then I'm picking which one it is. Yes. Okay. For each one, you'll just tell me. I'll give you the name, and then you'll tell me streaming service, video service, or porn site. All right? Let's go ahead and get started. Our first option, Sean, is a service called Full Moon. Uh, normal streaming. You are correct. It is a cult movie streaming service. The next one, videos with a Z. Porn. Yep, that is a porn site. Next, Feelin with a big N at the end. Uh, normal. Yes, it is the Hallmark Channel's streaming service. Okay. Next one is Team Skeet. Uh, wait, Team or Team? Team. Beth- it's Team, S-K-E-E-T, uh, Team Skeet. I'm going to still say porn. Yeah, it's porn. Okay. When you said Team Skeet, I'm like, no, that's definitely got to be some sort of porn bullshit. Uh, but then I was like, oh, what did he say Team? Still, still porn. Mofos. Uh, like motherfuckers, so probably porn. Yeah, it's porn. Yep. Next is Dazen, D-A-Z-N, all capital letters. D-A-Z-N. Yes. What is it? Porn? No. Damn. It is a international sports service, technically pronounced DAZN. Okay. I, I, was, I was betting on the A being adult and the N being network. So that's why I went porn. Nope, it's sports. Next one is TNA Flicks with an X. See now this is this is a trick one because obviously clearly you just say porn for that but now but it's so obviously porn. I'm going to say porn still. Correct. Okay. Okay. Next one is Fakku F A K K U. That's porn. I know about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's hentai. Yes. I mean it's just the Japanese pronunciation of the word fuck. Next one? Brown sugar. Ah, oh, fuck this. I don't want to say one of these. I'm going to say normal just to like not be sound racist. And you're correct. It is a site focused on African American cinema, particularly black exploitation. Okay. Next one, boomerang. How is it spelled? Is it just normal? Yeah. Okay. I thought maybe there was like a U in there. If there was like U with an umlaut, I would say porn. It was a weird German porn site. I'm going to say normal. You are correct. It's all the classic cartoons like Looney Tunes. Oh, oh, okay. So it's just that boomerang. Okay. Yes. 
All right, next one is Twisties with a Y at the end. With a Y. Yes, Twisties. Porn? Yes. Okay. If it was IE, no. But porn, it was the same thing. There was one earlier that ended with the Z. I'm like, it's got to be porn. All right, well, this next one is Keys Movies, K E E Z Movies. Normal? No, it's porn. Doesn't even make sense. Why? Where? Okay, the next one is Mubi, M-U-B-I. Normal? Yes, it's global cinema streaming stuff. Okay. Freud box. <laughs> I, I want it to be porn, but I think it's probably still normal. No, it's porn. Really? Yep. It's, I okay. found it on a list online. I'm about to go to go to Freud box. Give you the next one while I find out what's what's there. Next one is Tubi T U B I T T U B I. Yes. Fuck. Um. Normal. Yeah, it's ad supported free TV. Okay. I'm having a hard time finding Freud box. By the way, there's a lot of other things called Freud box. I should probably not Google it and just go to Freudbox.com. I'm guessing. Okay. Give me what, what was the next one. It's called Spool, S-P-U-U-L, Spool. S-P-U-U-L. Yes. Porn? No, it is Bollywood streaming from India. Okay, see, if it was European, it would have been porn. If it's Indian, then that makes sense. Next one, Mad Thumbs. Porn? Yes. Okay. And finally, last one, Peacock. Is it just normal spelling? Yeah, P-E-A-C-O-C-K, Peacock. Yeah, so P-E-A-Cock. Okay. Um, normal. Yes, it's the new NBC streaming service, Home of the Office. No, oh, of course, that makes sense. Also, by the way, Freudbox, Freudbox is definitely a porn site. Yep, I can, can confirm. Well, anyway, Sean, you did very well on the lightning round, so you win. You have, by my count, uh, something like 50 Something, someone, you have enough points. You yes. won. I, I, you came up with the most bizarre point scoring method. I just didn't understand why it was structured that way. Because the streaming landscape is very weird. Uh, and so the point system had to be weird too. Yeah, it's, it's weird. I mean, it's better than what cable was, but it's still weird. All right. So I think that's it for this week. This has been a long show, a tiring show, yep. an exciting show. But I had fun. I had fun too. Um... But I want to play Star Wars. So let's wrap it up. All right. I want to play Star Wars too. We will be back next week or sometime soon. We're going to be doing another Weekly Suit Gundam on Victory Gundam at some point. We've got lots coming down the pike. Thanksgiving's coming up. We'll see you later. McClunky. <laughs>